you asked me the other day what Irene's cousin has that you don't have. And I thought about it because it's a pretty good fucking question. And yeah, she's sexy enough, even with the one pin gone, but that's not it. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos one episode at a time. Our focus today is Whitecaps, the season four finale, an episode that was asked to reflect the show at its apex, at a point when it was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world with multiple title defenses under its belt. It's an episode worthy of extra special examination, and so I'm thrilled to be able to spend time going through it frame by frame with Oren Aviv. Oren is a seasoned film executive and producer. He's the former president of production, president of marketing, and the chief creative officer of Disney Studios, the president of marketing and CMO for 20th Century Fox, and most recently, the president and chief content officer of STX Entertainment. Oren, welcome and thank you. You're very welcome. I'm amazed at that list of credits there. I can't believe three different companies employed me. (laughs) That's shocking. You can comfortably add fourth to your resume here as Sopranos superfan for indulging me and being a part of this project. There's no question that I would do this, and I also, to add to that, can't believe that you asked me to do it. But I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Fun story about how we met. You were booked to be a guest for another podcast, and you showed up to my studio early. You noticed uh, my Sopranos books and memorabilia, and we started talking about the show for about a half hour. I told you about this Sopranos retrospective podcast and you immediately subscribed. Embarrassingly, I had no idea who you were until after you started your interview. At that point, like a true professional, I put my name and number on the back of a post-it note and handed it to you, and the rest is history. Since then, we've gone back and forth by email about this very episode and your passion and enthusiasm combined with your unique expertise is sure to make this podcast one of the most legendary moments of this project, uh, for me, certainly. And our first meeting, I gotta say, is a story I'm gonna tell for a long time in true Sopranos fashion. And by that, I mean season two, episode one, the title, a guy walks into a psychiatrist's office, but instead my version will be a guy walks into a podcast studio. Love it. With all that, are you ready? No. (laughs) Okay. This episode was written by Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, and David Chase, directed by John Patterson. It originally aired on December 8th, 2002, Nice little happy holidays from David Chase. It was the longest episode of the series, which is fitting, since this will probably be the longest episode of the podcast. Uh, Trophy sidebar, which I'm sure you know something about. James Gandolfini, Edie Falco, David Chase, Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, and John Patterson all earned hardware for their work on this episode. That makes me very happy to be reminded of that. They all deserved it. HBO synopsis. In the season four finale, Tony and Carmela contemplate purchasing a shore house. But a voice from the past threatens the deal. 
I love that. I love that little insertion of language there. While Uncle Junior breaks out the hearty burgundy, little Polly and Benny break in a new sound system on the Stugats. With Carmine apparently intent on putting the past behind him, Tony and Johnny Sack weigh their options carefully. (laughs) Classic. Oh my gosh, that's great. Before we rigorously examine this episode, can you speak to the marketing of this show as a whole? Uh, I'm sure it's different than marketing a major motion picture, but can you speak to process and maybe armchair quarterback with the benefit of a little hindsight? I heard you say in another interview that marketing a movie is as important, if not more important, than the movie itself. Apply that axiom here. Well, I happen to know the company that created the original ad campaign for the show, a company called Intralink. And from the very beginning of the show's debut, they centered all their marketing materials around both definitions of a family. So the professional and the personal, which, of course, is always connected in this show by blood. The art, as I recall, that adorned the DVD covers, every season grew progressively darker, as the show did. Almost angrier was my interpretation of it. And I wrote down, I didn't remember it, but the copy line they used in the first season was, if one family doesn't kill him, the other family will. Mm -hmm. Um, It sums it up nicely. I wouldn't call it the greatest copy line I've ever read, but it does sum up, at least for the first-time viewer, oh, I get it. It's not just a show about people who sing with high voices, or it's not, oh, it's mafia show only. So I think it was good that they tried to delineate that. And as the seasons went on, HBO would hire superstar photographers like Annie Leibovitz and Anton Corbin to shoot these signature shots uh, that defined the Sopranos in key art. So mm. that, that's sort of my connection to the marketing of the show. I think it's a very hard show to market. You know, some shows, I think, are uh, more straightforward, right? But because the aspirations are so high from David Chase and the other folks who contributed to the show, the bar is so high. I think when that happens, whether it's in television or the movies, there's an extra sense of need and requirement on the part of the marketing to elevate itself to that same level. And at the same time, you want as wide a population who's going to share their eyeballs with your show. Mm-hmm. So it, it just depends. So looking back on it, I think it's the kind of show that is almost impossible to have the marketing reach that same level of sophistication and entertainment and it's both funny and it's gut-wrenching and there's blood and there's innocence and there's corruption and there's all this stuff and so many layers and advertising usually doesn't have that opportunity to go into all those layers. We open on Carmela getting checked out by the doctor, Dr. Cusimano to be precise. Nice callback to the pilot. Tony accompanies her. She says he didn't have to come, but he kind of had to, right? Everything that's been leading up to this this season, the fingernail, the bird feed, her meltdown, 
in episode Eloise because of meadow inferior bolting. This is sort of a nice way to establish in the season finale that something is going to happen between Tony and Carmela, however subtly. Yeah, it is odd to see him accompany her on any form of an errand. Absolutely. (laughs) Errand, exactly. Nice touch, I thought. Um, One of the things that I do in the podcast, probably perhaps to a fault at this point, is overanalyze the framing. Um, But I think everything's intentional, and I actually watched the DVD cut that David Chase commented on for this episode, and he was over-commenting on the framing. Ah. So there is an intention behind... I don't think I've ever heard uh, a syllable of David Chase's comments I don't, I don't own that DVD set. I got it just for this project, and I watched it today before sitting down with you, so I have a couple of awesome. inserts. Great. The thing that I noticed in this scene is that Tony's out of focus in the background, along with an out-of-focus eye chart, okay? And the significance, of course, Carmela will be in focus this episode. Nice. Let's see. Patsy calls. Chris is out of rehab. It's been a while. Missed you, Chris. Out since episode 10 of season four we see that adriana got a new car it's a sky blue ford thunderbird we don't spoil anything on the podcast but it's a nice easter egg for a future episode (laughs) long-term parking now wait a second your listeners i presume have seen every episode correct many have but a lot of young listeners are watching it for the first time oh i see they were too young to watch it. so we don't want to give anything Away. We don't give anything away. We sort of allude to, Certain like I'll things. say, put this in your pocket and hold on to okay. it because it's relevant. But we can assume that every listener has, heard, has seen this, this particular episode. episode. Yes. Okay. We Thank assume you. everything white caps and past is fair game. Okay. Got it. Thank you. Patsy notices that Agent Harris, too, is surveilling the scene. Agent Harris ever the consummate recipient of a middle finger from a member of Tony's crew, or Tony himself, absorbs another one on the chin with grace, this time from Patsy. Um, You know, it's amazing to me how much we like Agent Harris. Love Agent Harris. Even though he's, quote-unquote, the enemy, right? He's the FBI guy, and by painting him as both a competent professional and therefore a legitimate threat to our heroes— but also somehow sympathetic. Uh, He stands out to me amongst the FBI folks, even though all the characters are so well drawn. But we single him out ourselves as he seems like a good guy. I've always said he's playing on both sides. Yeah. He's a part of Tony's crew. It's just in a very unofficial capacity. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Um, Love him. And I loved having him on the podcast as well. Tony says, your cousin's out of rehab to Carm. This is something that's always bothered me. Again, it's a reminder that the family tree has always been a little cloudy with respect to Christopher. But at this point in the show, we can confidently say Christopher is Tony's nephew by marriage. Doc Cusimano comes in. Score one for the Italians. You don't have lupus. Thank God for that, huh? Got me (laughs) wondering about Italians and lupus. Is there a connection? Lupus is an autoimmune disease that can damage skin, joints, and even organs. I did some cursory digging in PubMed and found a medical journal article that found only moderate levels in the Italian female population, approximately one case in every 1,408 patients screened. We learn then that she might have mono, which I thought 
was subtle, if not too direct. It's also a great opportunity for the Tony Soprano Epstein bar soundbite. <laughs> but also, it's colloquially known... The Epstein bar. The Epstein bar, yeah, yeah. yes. Thank you. It's also colloquially known as the kissing disease. Is Tony clever enough to put two and two together at that moment and become suspicious? Let's find out. Doc mentions, has your stress been off the charts lately? <laughs> to which we, the viewer, one of the classic things about cinema or TV... The viewer is always in on something. People on the screen are sometimes not privy to this information. Here, we're privy to her wanting to basically scream into the room, yes, unrequited love, my escape plan, he bolted. <laughs> but, of course, instead, ever the calculating methodical practitioner, she simply says, Just the usual, one day runs into the next. In the context of this marriage, and even from the beginning talking to the priest, she wants her cake and she wants to eat it too. And in this particular episode, where a lot of truth is told, often for the first time in their marriage, and certainly in the four seasons of this, The Sopranos. So I, I just find it interesting because she feels sorry for herself, right? We open on she's feeling sorry for herself, and it's hard for her to get out of bed, and, you know, she's depressed, and we get it, and there's no amount of Advil or other things that will get her out of this depression. Except, of course, Tony, who, who knows her really well, is going to get her out of the depression when he gets this <laughs> house. And it's also, we don't usually get to see Carmela as being depressed. She's usually the strong, sort of, she's got the fortitude to power through this life. But now, the opening scene is her... In despair. And yeah, saying, she professionally doesn't notice certain things and doesn't address certain things. Absolutely. Great Tony line, social commentary corner, if you will. You know, it's amazing. I got a relative has got a heroin problem. Now, the people that need drugs, all they can get is shit like Advil. <laughs> nice little Chasian social commentary. Yeah, and the other thing that I love about that is... Tony's always justifying his work, his behavior, everything he does and says. He pretends, I think, in this moment to be interested or knowledgeable about the country's drug problem or the health insurance problem. Because he read a headline in a newspaper. Yeah, I mean, he's well-read, yeah. relatively speaking. But whatever these problems are that plague the country, really, it's just self-serving. Of course, yes. In the car... Tony drives past a place called Grove Street, their usual turnoff. He's got to make a stop at the shore, a place called Seabright. A nice little junket to set up the season finale. Very expansive. When you get to leave the confines of a safe environment that you know and love about a show, you get to go someplace else. It's kind of cool. Uh, escapist. Carm isn't into it. Tony says they'll stop at bars so she won't have to cook. Tony's referring to a place called Bars Landing. It's still going strong since 1917. Oh, wow. I want to go there. Again, this is, I'll pretend this is about you, but it's really about me. Yes. <laughs> That's it's going to be a theme this episode. Classic Tony M.O. Cut to Johnny Sack, basking in the North Jersey sunlight, outside his house, which was at one point going to be the Soprano house, per David Chase. Ginny Sack tells him they're late on Allegra's nursing school payment a foreshadowing that things are tight 
ever since the Esplanade project was shut down (laughs) on Carmine's orders. So is this foreshadowing, or is it just a lovely reminder of the ongoing issues caused by Carmine's hard head, you know? And also when Johnny Sachs says (laughs) that they, quote-unquote, need a little belt tightening, Yeah, you know, I love the more overt reference to money there, but also the choice of words referring also to Ginny's ongoing weight issues. Yes. I I cannot help but imagine how much fun the writer's room is having when they get to, like, insert these little quips. You know, it's just, it's too perfect. John says, Sally May calls and your response to that is to go shopping? It's a sale, John. I need clothes for Italy. We're still going, aren't we? Might be time for a little belt tightening. He's visibly shook by his newfound cash crunch. Such a pragmatist, Johnny Sack, right? (laughs) Curiously, the camera reveals that Johnny Sack has been watching the early stages of a construction project. Perhaps a two-on-the-nose reminder of how much money he's losing on the Esplanade with each dig of nearby excavators, scooping money out of his pockets. I love that. I just That's love... That's intentional, right? Yes, and I, I, if you assume that everything is yes. in this show, I just love this show. I, I, I just want to say, no matter how many accolades or awards or <laughs> podcasts or books this show has gotten, I still don't think it gets enough credit for being as brilliant as it is. So the fact that, yes, that we're sitting here and noticing... <laughs> These construction cranes or whatever they are called doing what it's doing right next door to him as this constant reminder to him. Not just He's of, watching it. It's, he's watching it his, happen his and he doesn't get any money from it. This is so fucked up, is what he's thinking. <laughs> it's incredible. And I've seen the show so many times, but in, in with Pada Bing glasses, that's what I saw. Like he's staring at a construction site in his backyard. Again, the, the symbolism is incredible, you know? <laughs> he's watching the early stages of a construction project, like I mentioned. I'm gonna have a couple of non sequitur questions for you because I would love to pick your brain on a couple of things. Sure. What do the early stages of a movie marketing campaign look like? In this scene, foundation is being laid, right? What does that look like from a film marketing strategy point of view? The early stages for every movie marketing campaign consist of reading the script, talking to the filmmakers, looking at dailies, uh, having initial discussions with my team of marketeers, uh, listing pros and cons like assets and liabilities for every film, that kind of thing, getting a feel for the tone, uh, what's the essence of the film, what's the film's big idea, if there is one. And there's a very different approach when you're selling a weekly show than if you're selling a one-off movie. But I would say if White Caps was a film on its own, if you just look at this episode as a 75-minute movie, you might sell the hook of this movie being about the dissolution of a mob marriage uh, with the various mob machinations and plot points happening in the background. You might lean into this being Carmela's story, not Tony's, which sort of connects back up to what David Shea said about the very opening shot. You might sell the larger cultural impact of this White Caps movie in terms of a mobster trying to have it both ways. A powerful mob boss outside his home. He's making deals. He's doing, he's calling the shots. And now he's a powerless husband 
<laughs> getting kicked out of his family home by his wife. And I think there's a lot of drama, not just in the episode, obviously, because we've invested four years of our time watching this. But from a movie marketing standpoint, I think you that's the kernel of where I would start. David Chase thought of each one of these episodes as movies. That was the original conceit of the pilot. He never thought it was going to get made, right? So the pilot is a standalone film. College, the episode in season one where Tony takes Meadow to look at schools and then he takes the guy out with the wire, that's a standalone movie. This very well could be, if you didn't know who any of these characters were and you just came to Whitecaps, you said it so eloquently, it essentially would be a vignette or a short story about the dissolution of a marriage. Yeah, and I think um, uh, now that you give it that context for me, the truth of the matter is, from an industry standpoint, the television industry selling a weekly series is very different than on the movie side of the business selling a sequel to a movie. Mm. And so when you bring it up in this context, not only does it make perfect sense to have the view be every episode is its own movie, again, you try to find what's, what's the big idea of a given film and it seems pretty clear that this one is about the issues that a mob boss and his wife, or flipped, the wife of a mob boss and how she sees that marriage. Mm. I think there's a lot of, it's very fertile very. ground. Cut to the New Jersey shoreline. The juxtaposition of nature and modernity, something that The Sopranos always does as well, the contrasting different scenes, different people, disparate things coming together. Here we get the ocean and the now antiquated telephone poles and power lines, something that makes every Californian cringe <laughs> when you see yeah. those things and a gust of wind. Love the creative choice to expand the universe to the shore for the season finale. Again, it's a great palate cleanse, nice slice of ginger root. <laughs> We see Tony pulling into a driveway. Whose driveway? Carm's head is on a swivel. She can't figure out what's going on. Hugh's on site. Love Hugh DeAngelis, Carmela's dad. Yeah. He calls Carmela Mel, a nice subtle writing touch. The house has a name. Camera trains on it. It's white caps, which to me signals Q America's horse with no name song for some reason. I don't know why. I'm going to play it. <laughs> Note the contrast here. Johnny Sack is tightening the belt, like you mentioned, but Tony Soprano is about to plunk down millions on a beach house. What do you make of that? Well, uh, I wondered, because I, I think it demonstrates that Tony is a bigger thinker, a long-term strategist, a, a real decision maker, a true captain of industry type. Um, more so than Johnny Sack, who's reliant on Carmine for his future and has to sit and tighten his belt and other more powerful players are making decisions that affect him and, in this case, fuck with his livelihood. And this aspect, this sort of unequal power structure between him and Tony uh, will frustrate him later in this episode when Tony again sees the bigger picture. Tony's rationale for the house... It's a draw for the kids to stay close to the family as they branch out. So let me ask you something here, because it strikes me that this is just Tony's fantasy. 
right, uh, to buy a beach house, to be able to show it off as a symbol of his success, maybe even to make his familia family jealous and sort of understand that he is the power source. They're not the power source. He can do this. He can have a boat. He can have a beach house. He can do what he wants and buy what he wants. Yes, he says he wants to leave it for the kids, and therefore he's bought it to leave for his kids. But I think it's really about his wanting a beach house, the ultimate symbol of the American dream. For anyone who wants to be seen as successful and carefree and, look, Ma, I made it. Mm, mm. Um, And what better way to do that than with a house on the shore? Mm. He wants to be admired and respected by family and his familia and strangers alike. He wants to be considered part of the establishment, even as he operates outside of it. Interesting. And ultimately, too, though, he just wants what he wants whenever he wants it. So Great point. There's, <laughs> there's that, too. So for you, you're, it's not about the kids at all. It's, it's about him. It's a total vanity play. I think so. It's like a billionaire. He's got everything. What do you do? You buy an NBA team. Yeah, I think I think uh, it's a play thing, just like any sort of non life and death thing and choice in his life is is some form of that. He likens it to the Kennedy compound, which is kind of funny because the Kennedy compound is actually more like three houses on six acres in Cape Cod. But hey, they're both clapboard. (laughs) Through Carmela's questioning, we learn that the house is already sold, but that the buyers might not qualify for financing. Now, recall this was back in 2002, and if I'm not mistaken, the banks were handing out loans to anyone with a pulse back then. (laughs) To round out the scene, we're introduced to Alan Sappinsley, lawyer and owner of Whitecaps. Got to say, this guy did a great job on this episode. So, so, yes. So, the thing I absolutely love about this episode is the juxtaposition of Alan being a brute and a bully and a liar and a double crosser just like tony can be but alan has a law degree and therefore his awful behavior is considered legal whereas tony is all those things too but what tony does is illegal or at the very least extra legal same traits but with one guy society and culture admires his methods and his approach For instance, Alan butting up to Tony with his legal advice of how to screw over his wife. What you want to do is meet professionally with, you know, perfunctorily with these lawyers in the area. Uh, Whereas with the other guy, Tony, his behaviors and methods, while exactly the same, Tony's behaviors are looked down upon and carry a darker tone and demonstrate a much more underhanded and therefore less admired individual in society by comparison. Mm. And we respect the bully with the law degree. Oh, he's smart. Oh, he must know what he's doing. He must be successful, etc. But we don't respect the bully with the mobster degree. But their methods are of equal value and success until they go head-to-head against each other. And that's where Tony will ultimately win. Mm. Plus, who doesn't want to see a dick lawyer lose to Tony Soprano? In retrospect, Alan's preppy wife was right, and he should have listened to her instead of playing it out his way. Probably not the first or last time his ego dictates his approach. 
thank you, Rabbi, is such a condescending insult as well as a funny line. But Alan, who curiously shares the same initials as Tony, underscoring there being two sides of the same coin, has no sense of humor, but he's ultimately defeated by his doppelganger, the mob boss, with a tactic that demonstrates a fantastic sense of humor. Mm, mm. Playing Dean Martin records really loudly and winning ugly, as Tony always does. So I just love that they are two sides of the same coin. One's the legal version, which I have a couple of other notes to come back to about that, because there are so many, if you think of it that way, there are many moments in this episode that underscore that. So it's funny you mentioned the the advice that he gives Tony about the lawyers for divorce. Chase said on the DVD that he had actually heard that in some circles when he was in Hollywood. It was like, it's like it was a classic tactic. And he's like, I just heard that and I thought it was brilliant. And and he's, and that's the kind of lawyer that I wanted to model Alan after. So <laughs> it, it, and, he yes. said, and he said that there's right. basically, there's like an infantry of these people in Hollywood. If you're there long enough, you like, you will encounter them in, in spades. <laughs> From a lawyer painting a landscape atop his balcony, we cut to a courtroom. The jury on Junior's trial is deadlocked. The judge is allowing extra time to reach a verdict, a tactic that helps the prosecution. There's this thing called the hung jury, the mistrial, that's the concern. It's what Junior's hoping for. Made me wonder how likely or common are these outcomes. It turns out that they're a little less than 8% of all the cases in the federal courts. So Mm. it's a pretty small minority of cases actually result in a hung jury. Mm. So they're rare. Quick aside on something called the Allen Charge. It comes from a Supreme Court case in 1896. The basic premise is to instruct a hung jury to please reconsider. 23 states, including California, have completely or partially rejected the Allen Charge. New Jersey is not one of them. Nice. Verdict has to be unanimous in criminal cases, which is something that people sometimes confuse. Civil cases, they can be majority, but in a criminal case, there has to be a unanimous vote. So if there's even one juror that is on the fence, it's a hung jury. Note how all the jurors look at the compromised juror as the judge is instructing them. Shouldn't the judge be receptive or suspicious of that? Did that, did you catch that? Do you, did, uh, did that resonate with you in any way? Uh, It didn't bother me in the slightest. I love that you noticed that. One of the things I warned you about in advance of doing the podcast with me is anytime there's an opportunity for an awkward silence, you should feel free to take it (laughs) because I do observe things at an acutely obsessive level. No, I think that's great. And this is one of those few shows that can stand up to that kind of scrutiny. Yeah. Okay. The last moment in this scene that's great and the opportunity to drop a Godfather reference I'm going to find Junior looks at the juror like Michael Corleone looks at Frank Pantangeli in two. That's all it takes, a look. It's a sign of the incredible muscle that these guys have. Um, And Chase even alludes to it as well. When uh, Eugene Pontecorvo goes into the convenience store to talk to the juror, he doesn't really actually say anything to him other than, I know you'll make the right decision. (laughs) Oh, is that your son? Yeah. Yeah. And, And I also love how this juror, this poor Yahoo, tries to awkwardly make friends with that grandmother who's on the jury with him after the mistrial is declared. Fact. That's Edie Falco's mom. No. Oh, that's fantastic. So this guy is so weak 
and the Soprano family is able to zero in on him as the most turnable of the persons on the jury. So once again, the human condition and an accurate read of weakness and vulnerability is a skill that Tony and some high-level folks in his family uh, excel at. And except for AJ, of course, who seems to excel at very little. Well, there's he has a moment. We'll okay. see. Back over to Tony, paying the delivery guy. Another slip back to <laughs> episodes past. Orange Peel Beef 2.0, wait for it. Also, shout out to the cordless phones of yesteryear. Yeah, they were large. Another historic point of note, the delivery guy is donning a New Jersey Nets cap. Another thing the podcast has somewhat become famous for is NBA references, Hmm. however non-sequitur. This, remember, was the Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin, Kerry Kittles era when they were running through the Eastern Conference. It's revealed that Carm is not orchestrating dinner tonight. This is a nice subtlety because it's a classic show-don't-tell model of writing where when Tony runs dinner, it involves takeout. Also, I love the role reversal of Carmela coming down the stairs disheveled and wearing a robe while Tony takes care of dinner and sets the table, however, badly. Love it. Goes back to frame one, right? The focus is on Carmela. I guess that deal's gonna go through. Wonder who they are. Carmela, great little moment. Wonder who they are. While she's saying that, note that she's wielding a dinner knife. Intentional. Has to be. Tony, classic soundbite. Motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. Also, also, who hasn't had this happen to them, especially with Chinese takeout? There's an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where the entire plot revolves around Larry David getting shortchanged on his takeout shrimp order or whatever it was. The mundane aspects of everyone's real life being mirrored in The Sopranos so beautifully and usually hilariously. We laugh at Tony's and all the other characters' humdrum frustrations because we recognize their frustrations are just like ours. And also, so much for Tony being in charge, right? He can't even, he can't even <laughs> get, get what, he's, order. what he's ordered. And But I do love how the show seems to go to extraordinary lengths to deliver us the ordinary. Yes. So good. Classic Christopher line, right? The regularness of life. (laughs) Carmela's loaded refrain. She tries to lecture him on how he's supposed to check the order, right? We've all gotten that. (laughs) I've been on that end of the stick, too. Well, I guess some things weren't meant to be. Such a loaded, efficient piece of writing on multiple levels. She, of course, is talking about Furio. The takeout order and the Whitecaps house. <laughs> Three birds with one stone. That's great. Carmela has instituted a $3 per swear word policy. <laughs> I have small kids at home. Any perspective on whether such a program works? I'm asking for a friend, of course. Okay, well, funny enough, years ago, when the director, Brett Ratner, was just starting out in Hollywood... Uh, we had a meeting where my daughter, Alex, who maybe was eight at the time, happened to be there with me for some reason. And Brett, who's very funny, swore like a sailor during that meeting. And every time he did that, he unceremoniously removed a $1 bill <laughs> from his pocket and placed it in a glass on my desk. And so I've seen this program in action 
And uh, I will tell you, after filling that glass with ones after just maybe 12 minutes, I can tell you this policy does work, Vic. Good. Good yeah. to know. Yeah. Thank you. I also think it's a hilarious beat and a very funny yet emotionally powerful episode that Carmela is basically going through the motions of acting like she's in charge acting like an authority in this house where nobody makes an effort and nobody respects authority in any aspect of their lives. And this is just another example when she says, we're going to make this policy work. It's just lip service from from my reading of it. And, and it's just another example of how Carmela has sort of given up in white caps, saying dispassionately that we're going to make this policy work, when she in fact knows it never did and never will. And even AJ recognizes this by responding to Carmela, it's too late. Like, mm. this policy won't work. So this, of course, applies to any parental policy ever instituted by Tony or Carmela in their home or marital life. You can repeat the words in a monotone or in a scream, but it's your actions that count. And so the hypocrisy is absolutely nailed here, even with something as seemingly throwaway as a swear jar. Next up, we have Carmela in bed rationalizing whitecaps. Another relatable thing that spouses and husbands and wives and significant others have done in bed with each other, ruminating on what they're going to do tomorrow morning. If you don't get the place, she says, you'll sulk and I'll be the wet blanket. Love that. Yeah, well, and this is not the last time that Carmela and Tony both speak the absolute truth to one another. This time, they're sort of speaking into the wind even though they're being accurate. And later in the episode, in famous fashion, they will go much further in telling the truth about the other. You mentioned a moment ago Tony's motivations for the house. I want to flip this on you for a second. She's saying, if you don't get the house, you know, you'll sulk and I'll be the wet blanket. But is she angling here? Early in this season, and basically the whole sort of like storytelling thrust of this season is her trying to set herself up financially. It feels a little like she has something else in mind here. She's framing it as Tony's want, but isn't this a disguise for her own long-term planning? Yeah, I think she is. She wants this beautiful house on the shore. She wants it, goddammit. Just like she wants the endless supply of other material things Tony's money buys her, helping to mask this ambivalence and this guilt over so much blood money coursing through her and her kids' lives. And I think it's all intermingled. I think it's all, like, uh, coalescing together. It's Part of it is it's a great house. It's a great beach house. She's uh, Is she studying for her real estate license she's, yeah. or she's yeah. already gotten it? I can't remember. She's studying. She's studying. And so there's sort of a professional, dispassionate, approach that she takes about it. Oh, it'll be a good investment. She's playing him. I've, she knows how to play his game to yes. make it think it's his idea. Right. But, you know, typically Tony is one or two steps ahead of everybody, mm-hmm. right? He may not know exactly what's coming, but he's read her very nicely and accurately as he usually does. And so he knows when she's upset. He knows when she wants something. He knows how to fix a problem that he's caused. So, yes, I think she is doing her version of getting what she wants. 
I love the teeter-tottering at the end while fluffing her pillow. Tony's like a pinball in her little arcade game. Finally, (laughs) she leaves us with the saying of Nietzschean heft. Of course, Nietzsche is very prominent in the show. More is lost by indecision than by wrong decision. David Chase said that came from Confucius or something. Hmm. Contextual question for you. Professionally, when has that statement rung true for you? What were the circumstances and what was the outcome? Well, I'd say sometimes more is gained by indecision than by wrong decision. Mm. Um, Probably both are true. I can give you an example. There was a movie long ago uh, starring Reese Witherspoon called Sweet Home Alabama. And we cut a TV commercial for that movie. And what happened was we finished that TV commercial. It was a very good TV commercial. Usually for a movie campaign, you'll have a dozen, two dozen, three dozen TV commercials. I've worked on movies where there were 70 or 80 different commercials that you make to sell one movie. In this case, we had one TV spot that was working so well, and it was on the air for about a week, and we knew from the research we were doing called tracking, we knew from the research that it was a very successful TV spot. So, uh, and we watched as the numbers for females, young and old, kept rising week to week, even though we were running only one spot. I happened to catch that spot on the air one night, and uh, I noticed that there was a, maybe uh, by two or three frames, there was a piece of dialogue that was out of sync, which is horrifying. Never happens. It happened on this one spot. So... I called the executive who had finished the spot and I pointed out this one scene that was out of sync and he was horrified because it's his job. He should make sure it's not out of sync. Well, the next morning we had done some research from the night before and the numbers kept going up. So I thought, you know what? I'm not going to replace that spot (laughs) with an in-sync version. I'm just going to let it run. And it was literally one the only time in my entire career where we ran one TV spot the whole time, even though I realized that there was a moment that was out of sync. So I don't know if that tells you anything <laughs> or if there's anything to learn from that, but that would be my example of indecision sort of benefiting. There is a bit of a meditative, almost Buddhist thesis to your decision there too. You just, you didn't overreact. No, I just let things happen as they had. I happen to have research that showed me that things were continuing to grow and people were excited about seeing it and eventually opened to $30 million. But the truth of the matter is the normal way to approach something like that is fix it. Or to panic and to like roll heads. Panic is also a good Hollywood option, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Cut to Christopher in the driveway. With Furio gone, interestingly, we're back to square one. A line from Tony. Christopher's shuttling Tony around now. Hey, Jack Lemmon. How's Lee Remick? Hey, Tony. That, of course, is a reference to the 1962 movie Days of Wine and Roses, a film that explores addiction and overcoming it. Alcohol, specifically. Yes, alcohol, specifically. Note how Chris is pounding coke, again, an addictive trait Signaling, however subtly, that addictive tendencies haven't erased from his hard drive. So how the fuck are you? 
Can a place help you? Oh, yeah. I found out about strengths I have I didn't even know I had. And as Tony asks that question and Christopher says, yes, he sips from his Coke can. So That's more than just product <laughs> placement is my point. Besides the absolutely fucking amazing acting in every episode of this series by everyone in the cast, and especially in this particular gut-wrenching episode, I'd like to specifically call out Michael Imperioli's acting here, too. Because not only does he look and act totally clean for the first time this entire season, but it's a reminder of how great his acting has been in prior seasons because he really did seem high to varying degrees throughout season four. So great, great subtle acting from Mr. Imperioli. The bridges in the backdrop, another vestige of season one on both sides, Uh, the car sequences between Tony and Christopher. Tony downplays the need to go around apologizing to everyone. That's one (laughs) of the things you're supposed to do as part of rehabilitating yourself. Let sleeping dogs lie. Any thoughts or reactions to that mindset coming from a guy, like you said, is thinking two steps ahead? Yeah, I mean, it's an actual AA step, right, where you take inventory and you go one by one apologizing to everyone that you had wronged while you were wasted. But as ever, on The Sopranos, everything works on multiple levels. So the underlayer for Tony's messaging here is keep it quiet and go about your business. Basically, shut the fuck up about everything. Cut to Office Max, or whatever it is. Tony and Johnny Sack discuss business while walking the aisles of a business supply store. It's determined that a move from the outside is more palatable, more sellable to those involved in this enterprise of theirs. In the corporate world, Oren, specifically within the ranks of global media enterprises, is change best implemented or catalyzed from an outsider or from homegrown talent? Uh, I happen to be a big believer in hiring the best person for the job, wherever that person comes from, inside or outside. But always aim high. Uh, But you mitigate that thinking somewhat because you want to look internally first to see if there's someone already on the team who can do the job really well. It's not just a good consideration, I think, because that person already knows the system and how things work and the people he or she will be working with in this new capacity. The devil you know is always better than the devil you don't, but it's also great for company morale. It's great for staff to see that hard work gets rewarded and that you can grow in this company and ascend ever higher if you succeed and do the job well, that kind of thing. So it's a good signal to everyone inside the company that it's a meritocracy. We know that the mafia isn't a meritocracy, so (laughs) none of that thinking seems to apply. I wasn't making a connection between the corporate world and the mafia in any way. way. You can make many connections between entertainment and the mafia Mm. you could probably do that pretty well but that maybe is for another episode it takes you back to the dinner that dr melfi has at her house when her husband and their dinner guests are talking about how you know what makes tony soprano different from the guys in a boardroom kind of a thing you Mm -hmm. know there's uh, uh, in many instances you'd say i'd I'd probably be more concerned about the guy in the boardroom (laughs) than i would about tony soprano he's right uh what's in it for tony 
that's the whole kind of crux of this thing, right? Johnny says he'll take a sad song and make it better, quotes the <laughs> Beatles. Um, in regards to the other families and Tony's standing with those other families, this was news to me. Until now, it's never been established that Tony's had issues with the other families. Is this merely Johnny Sack posturing, or is something else afoot here? No, I, I think it's Johnny Sack pledging his help to Tony, should he ever need it, as a quid pro quo. Okay. Um, Appropriate word in this particular climate. Uh, (laughs) That Johnny Sack will owe him big time. So he knows this ask is the biggest of the big asks, and he's acknowledging that he will repay that debt. Tony, of course, is too savvy to take Johnny at his word, but he does like knowing that this is spoken out loud, Mm. I think. Mm. Also, another malapropism when Tony says to Johnny Sack, trying to use legal jargon, again, going back to the Tony, the mob lawyer versus Alan Alan Sappensley, and all claims to my HUD business are irrigated, (laughs) which I think is so funny. Yes. And again, another contrasting element between Tony and Alan, the actual lawyer who uses correct legal jargon throughout this episode. Johnny Sack references Paul Castellano, of course, the mob boss of the Gambino family, who was killed in an unsanctioned hit by John Gotti. We learn about Andy, Johnny Sack's brother-in-law, and ostensibly a conduit to the other four families. That's an interesting storyline that doesn't really get developed. Um, a red herring, if you will. Mm. Tony passes right now. He's playing it cool. He's doing like what you said. He's thinking two steps ahead. He's checking his leverage out, which is kind of a thing that I keep coming back to with Tony and Johnny Sack. Um, Johnny Sack's response is a page out of a book of a guy who was leading a mouse to the trap, but couldn't get him to bite the cheese, right? (laughs) Right there though, in that instant, Johnny Sack reveals his own weakness, a whiff. He gives Tony a whiff of desperation. Tony didn't have a lot of leverage before this conversation started, but now he has disproportionately more leverage than ever before. Johnny Sack wants this killing more badly, right? And Tony capitalizes. No HUD. All future construction projects are 60-40 in Tony's favor. (laughs) Where does leverage come from? Again, I'm making a contrast between the mob and entertainment. It's completely incidental here, okay? (laughs) Where does leverage come from in film deals, and how does it influence the green lighting process? Well, uh, leverage in Hollywood comes from the same place that it seems to with the mob. You know, every agent, manager, lawyer, executive, every deal maker of any kind is always looking for leverage to get the best deal. Best deal for clients, best deal for themselves, for a future deal, just a down payment on something. It's a system that's remarkably like the mob itself. So as far as influencing the green light process, I'd say it's separate from the deal-making process in that green lighting starts out as a creative process versus a deal-making process. Ultimately, it's a numbers game. Green lighting, if the numbers don't add up in domestic markets, internationally, ancillary such as paid TV and streaming, etc., you cannot green light that film. It's just bad business. Because mm. all of it's a big bet anyway. However, it's worth pointing out that there's a certain amount of that that's 
intertwined. And I, I can think of an example, the great producer and studio chief named Joe Roth. I remember when I was head of creative advertising at Disney, Joe Roth leveraged a strong relationship that he had with Bruce Willis. And he asked Bruce to do Six Sense for M. Night Shyamalan, who was a nobody at the time. Uh, and if Bruce agreed to do that, uh, at the time, small film, The Sixth Sense, Joe would give him Jerry Bruckheimer's and Michael Bay's Armageddon starring role. Some would call that leverage. Others would call that great deal-making. Still others would call it common sense, like it makes sense. If I can get him to do this, he'll give me that. But this concept is not confined to Hollywood or to the mob. Sure. It's, it's kind of standard operating procedure. Yeah. I remember it's a chit that I owe you or I will do this for you if you do this for me. Yeah. I love how you said The Sixth Sense was a then small movie. It was. And it was a small movie by an unknown writer-director who wrote a great script but not all great scripts end up being great movies, and he made a great movie. And the movie opened very well, and, and it happened to start a great relationship that I had with Knight for, I think, four movies, four or five movies that he made at Disney. And it was amazing to watch the world catch up to how great this script was. One of the few movies that has the most legendary tagline like when you say the name of the movie there's an expression that comes right after it how outlier is that i see dead people well uh you know Do you know what i'm saying like pa- yes as part of a script or part of a movie uh as a marketer you pray for those kinds of uh neon lit lines <laughs> from a character but they're they're rare, number one, and number two, they're hard to focus on and decide, oh, that's the thing that we're going to hang this entire movie on. In the case of this movie, that line stood out to me and stood out to uh, the trailer makers as rather obvious that it should be that. But if you think about it, it actually gives away a huge part of the movie. Risky. So there was debate about whether that was it. The fact that that became the one of the more famous lines from a movie ever is great retrospective looking back. Yeah, right. But in the, in the moment, moment, you're looking at it and you think that makes sense, but I could, I could probably at another time come up with 20 examples where I thought, oh, well, that's the line. Right. <laughs> and it turned out not to be the line. Yeah, but it's so cool, though, that it had... Uh, it has a Yo Adrian moment. When you say Rocky, Yo Adrian's what you think about. You know, it's a lightning in a bottle. Yeah, no, it's, it's rare. Back in the car, Tony tells Chris that they're going to take out Carmine Lupertazzi. You alluded to his great acting. We get some of that right here, his reaction. Chris. Whacking a boss and one of the five families. Johnny's a snaky fuck. <laughs> great piece of line. Again, there's an awareness that there's a desperation on Johnny Sack's part here that we've never before seen because usually he's been one of the coolest customers on the show. Someone that we can kind of be like, oh man, John, this Johnny guy might be an equivalent rival for Tony Soprano, but in white caps, it all comes undone. It can never get out who whacked the old fuck. He mentions two black guys. I bring it up because it's symmetry from season one and the hit on Tony. Right. That Christopher 
accidentally broke up. Broke up the first time, the first attempt. Tony asks if they're trustworthy. A beat goes, and then he says, make sure. Make sure, in quotation marks, is code for kill them afterward, right? You bet it is. (laughs) You know, by asking if they're trustworthy, Tony is basically asking if they can keep a secret. And since the only way to ensure someone will ever keep a secret is if they're not breathing. (laughs) So that seemed like that was the plan. Some wisdom that was imparted from Chase is that these guys always speak in code, Tony more so than everybody else. And by doing this with Christopher, the make sure is basically establishing that this can never come back to Tony if Chris ever has to testify about these murders. So make sure, <laughs> it, like we get a kick out of it, but there's so many, as you said it a moment ago, it's like three steps ahead. Yeah. yeah. Not that he would ever testify, but just in case. No, the messaging seems clear, but it could be interpreted as unclear or argued in a court of law that it's unclear. Cut to Chris basking in the sun outside Whitecaps. Great piece of direction in terms of a frame, establishing frame, establishing shot, if you will. The season two scar from the gunshots he took is on full display. Alan comes over and introduces himself. He's donning a Sundance cap, 2002. What What a complete and total douchey fuckstick this guy is. (laughs) The turned up shirt collar also, Jesus, like nice touch with the Sundance cap. Of course, he'd not only have that hat, but he'd fucking wear it to show people how connected and inside he is. (laughs) Classic. Oh, man, I love it. I love that you said that, too. Um, So it made me wonder, naturally, what movies came out of Sundance in 2002. That's the year I graduated from college. I looked it up. Personal Velocity won the Grand Jury Prize that year. And I bring it up only because Feruza Balk was in it. There's a Sopranos tie-in. She was the original Deborah Waldrop before Lola Gladini took the role. The FBI agent that befriends Adriana. Hmm. and makes her think that they're friends. And uh, so there's a little Sopranos tie in there, however tenuous it might be. (laughs) Tony can close fast. This is something that Alan, a.k.a. douchebag, likes a lot. (laughs) A 15-day escrow, shortest allowable by law, versus a 90-day escrow. Alan's all for it. All right, so, but note again, it's Tony the outlaw actually observing the law with the 15-day escrow when he says the short is allowable by law. Is he trying to establish his cred there? Oh, no. I think he's just trying to convince him that he's a good choice as opposed to the Kims. But Alan is the actual lawyer here who's trying to skirt it. Mm -hmm. Also, the idea that this privileged American lawyer can easily and effectively and immediately figure out a way (laughs) to take advantage of another immigrant group, (laughs) the Korean Kims, is notable. And I don't know if this is also a reference to earlier when a Chinese restaurant takes advantage of Tony and his Italian immigrant family. I'm probably drawing too many tenuous connections. You, you have been listening to me for too long, and you definitely have your pot of Bing glasses on, and I love it. You, you, the connection is there. It's totally legitimate. There's symmetry, right? I keep saying symmetry, symmetry, symmetry. That is symmetry from uh, Orange Peel Chicken 2.0. <laughs> so... Alan calls the doc. It's one of the greatest pieces of one-side dialogue ever because you don't hear anything that Kim is saying, right? He says he's going into surgery, though, 
Then the camera cuts back to Chris's scar, which I thought was a nice touch. Mm. Great one-sided dialogue. He'll tort the buyer into the poorhouse if he tries to buy the place. Very telling reveal to Tony that this guy is a gangster in his own right. Yes. I wouldn't want to be the patient he's going to operate on. Let's hold a good thought. Tony's never begging or clawing for a quip. He's always got one, like, in his sleeve. And this is a classic one. Cut to Carmela in bed. The phone rings. Note how the camera trains on this scene for more than a moment. Several beats elapse before Carmela answers the phone. They're setting us up here. There's a rhythm and cadence that they're working up to in this episode. This time, it's Virginia Lupo on the line. The house is theirs. So, usually when a phone rings, (laughs) it's not good news. In The Sopranos, phone rings, somebody died, somebody got into an accident, somebody is hurt in some way. Yes. There's, There's a... Uh, a fire Tony has to put out. Correct. There's there's a problem. Yeah. His mother was calling. His Like, there's always an issue. His sister, there's always a problem. The phone doesn't ring unless there's a fucking problem. <laughs> Which, again, establishes the fact that this one lingers for a few beats. That's correct. So, I'm, as a viewer, watching it thinking, oh, God, what? who's calling? Why? This can't be good. Mm-hmm. And the way she answers the phone, I sort of think she's thinking the same thing. Yes. The last thing you're expecting and the last thing she's expecting is this amazing news that they really? got the house. <laughs> right. Like her depression, her mood changes like that. Yeah. And again, we are like on a roller coaster as the viewer going, oh shit, what's going to happen next? That's right. You know, we get a little bit of reprieve. Cut to the Ben station wagon pulling into the driveway. AJ looks like every kid that walks into <laughs> Disneyland for the first time. See what I did there? Mm. Meadow and Finn pull up. Tony makes a point to bring up inheritance to the kids, which I thought was a little curious. He's making right on things in his own way, similar to what Christopher was supposed to do as part of his recovery, apologize to the people he wronged. This played like Tony's version of that. That's a great observation. I hadn't thought of that. Now I'm just mad at myself that I didn't realize that before. No, but again, it's, he's also all about Tony. You know, when he took his daughter to college back in season one, that trip was less about her and more about whacking the guy that ratted on the family. Right? Right. Absolutely. So there's, it, this is the paradox of Tony, why we love him, but also feel extremely guilty about loving him. Yes. Next, Tony and Carmela take a walk along the coastline. Couldn't help but notice some of the stock footage there as well because it just didn't sync up visually with the rest of the show. They embrace. Have we ever seen them happier together? So, a couple of thoughts on this. One is, Tony says, first time I felt good about signing papers, which is another example in this episode of Tony doing something legal and by the books and referencing legal activity versus something illegal. As far as, have I seen them happier together? I, I My brain goes back to the sense that Carmela is always momentarily happy whenever Tony buys her expensive things. Mm. Uh, the Porsche Cayenne, the Emerald Ring, the fur coat, now the beach house. She seems to be happy, however, temporarily. She certainly lights up when Virginia calls, moment in the prior scene. But give Tony credit. He knows 
how to make her happy. She, he buys her pricey stuff. I know it doesn't just come down to that, but if you're asking when was the last time she was happy, my brain goes to those moments. The fur and coat. Yeah, if, if, if there's any doubt, that's exactly what he spells out to her in their extraordinary fight later in the episode. Yes. The image that immediately comes to mind for me is when they're at dinner and he tells her that, that he's in therapy. Mm-hmm. She seemed genuinely like outside, as like an out-of-body experience. Yeah, I, I remember that, yeah. Over to the hitman. Chris meets him in person. The plan is to make it look like a carjacking. He describes the scene where Carmine is. Carmine takes a walk every Tuesday and Thursday morning at the mall, Avenue U and Flatbush. It's a Macy's entrance today, mm-hmm. courtesy of Google Maps. It is currently a Best Buy. <laughs> Chris hands them a down payment. And they approve. Always wondered how much was in there. It looked like a lot. Mm-hmm. Sound bite. Next sound you hear. I always wondered about that line. It's loaded. It also references the series finale. Without spoiling anything, it references a conversation that Bobby and Tony have on a boat. You know, also when Christopher says, uh, make it look like a carjacking, one of the guys says, that's some stereotyping shit. Yeah. And in this episode, it made me think, because there's a lot of stereotyping shit in this episode, uh, not just using two African-Americans for a carjacking, but also the Chinese food incident, the doctor being Korean, the Jews like Alan Sappinsley being rich, uh, the racist reference by Tony in the pool when he quotes Chinatown, when he says, bad for glass, bad for glass. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Italians being gangsters. So I thought that was a nice self-reference for this entire episode because there are so many examples of that in one episode. I'll capstone it with the uh, David Chase mentioning the scene where Tony, we'll get to it, where Tony calls the kids to the kitchen to let him know that he's Mm -hmm. moving. It's the trope of the parents sitting down with the kids to let them know that the parents are splitting up. He hated it. He didn't like it. He said, I basically did what every other TV show does in a stereotypical fashion. Hmm. Kids, have a seat. He had problems with this episode, which I'll, I'll get to oh, when good. we get there. Yeah, Cut to AJ inside the Soprano residence. Buckle your seatbelts. 20 minutes into the episode at this point. I don't know about you, but when I would watch the finales, I would always pay attention to the clock because they have to pack a lot of stuff into the grocery bag and you, know, you don't want to miss a beat. Yeah. Contextual question for you. How many minutes before the story's arc needs to take shape in your mind? I know it's a, it's a general question, but, like, is there a formula, if you will, without sounding too formulaic? You know, uh, people will say there is a formula, and there are executives in Hollywood who, who think there are. Typically, there's an expectation when you read a script that a movie's inciting incident for that movie should happen within the first 10, 12 pages or so, which is usually within the first... 10 minutes of a movie. So if your story isn't clear for an audience within the first act of a film, uh, usually by page 30-ish or so, uh, then you're kind of fucked anyways, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, as someone who loves to go to the movies, we watch something, we want to have our hands on what it's about. want to hook onto something. Something, anything. So how much rope do you expect an audience to 
give you before making clear what your story is. Does the 20 minutes here signify a problem or a— Well, again, I, I think the question is different for a movie okay. than for a series because, to me, there just aren't enough scenes in any episode of the series. So I, I want to spend more time— with these characters and particularly the language that David Chase set up from the pilot of silence and just observing someone in the moment. I don't think time has as much of a role in sort of framing my interest in that episode. Okay. We see oranges on the table. Hmm. Godfather reference. The phone rings. AJ answers. It's Arena. Drunk. I'm going to run through the beats real quick. Her panties have the letter V on them. V for vendetta. Her line to Carmela is a gut punch of epic proportions. Is this Mrs. Sopranos? Yes, it is. I used to fuck your husband. I love Carmela's shoulder shrug when the phone rings again. She's like a boxer that sat down after a ring. You know, when they kind of get up, you'd see Sylvester Stallone and Rocky would kind of do this to get back into the thing. Mm -hmm. It's a very similar cadence that she kind of displays right there. David Chase even mentions it in the DVD. There was a message that he wanted to convey to the viewer that she needed to gather herself, but she was going to go right back in the ring. Was that a stage direction in the script? It was direction. Interesting, because Carmela literally loses her breath with that first phone call. Uh, and the second, really. Her wheels are spinning. Her body's shaking. She lays the phone down in its cradle ever so gently as if she's hoping that if I do it super quiet, that call didn't actually happen. Yes. As if hanging up the phone carefully won't have caused some kind of disturbance. And it's the catalyst for the remainder of the episode, obviously, and the culmination of four prior seasons of Tony's disrespect for Carmela, his infidelities, and the instigation of the breakup of their marriage. And it rattles her unlike anything we've ever seen happen to her before. And it rattles us. It rattles us. It's sort of, you know, this this phone call is the death of the mask of tranquility that they pretend exists in the house. Um, She has no choice but to act like if she re-cradles the phone as it was, that the call itself will go away and never return. But we, of course, know, and she really knows, that's all bullshit. That's just fantasy land. Because this ball of fire (laughs) has already started rolling downhill at lightning speed for everyone with that call. Little bit of movie making magic, which I'm you're all too aware of, but that somewhat disappointed me when I talked to the actor that played Arena on the show for the podcast. She did this phone call to somebody else on the other line, just reading her lines. There was no back and forth between Edie Falco and. uh, So who read? Arena's lines to Edie. Someone else, too. Do we know who? If I ever get to talk to Edie Falco, I'll ask Vic, her. Vic, come on, man. Hey, man. I need, I need, <laughs> if, you could, if you could call in some favors for me. Uh, but, it's, but it's interesting because it's, it's so cohesive. You feel that they're both talking to each other, but that's, that's movie-making magic for you right there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, the, no, it's, it's the framing and, of it. And great acting, actually. And great acting. On the second call, 
Arena one-ups her first dig. She's really been working on her English, okay? The news about Svetlana. Imagine where you are (laughs) on the pecking order. That is one to the chin, if there ever was one on the phone. Carmela absorbing blows like Rocky against Ivan Drago over here. Absolutely. But she, you know, she comes back swinging and threatening. And it's really not until Irina says that her cousin is the Russian with one leg that Carmela is really shaken to her core. It sets up one of her best lines ever. You call my house again. You ever speak to one of my children again, I will track you down and I will kill you. We have got guns here. I mean it. You remember my cousin. She was also his mama's caregiver with the one leg. It's just so absurd. Why would I make it up? It's funny when you watch it a few times. The moment goes from, I'm so angry at Tony and at this whore for bringing their affair into this house to Carmela realizing that Tony's also slept with someone who objectively would be the lowest person on that totem pole. That's when she really hits bottom, it seems, right? It's a, it's a punch in the gut and a slap in the face. Mm. It's not just you violated a rule by calling the house. You're giving me information that underscores all my instincts for 52 episodes up to now. Yeah, 100%. Svetlana is the perfect Trojan horse to explode their marriage, you know, and the way they slowly paced it, like bagpipes. I mean, it was building (laughs) to this, you know, and then all of a sudden, and Svetlana actually didn't really do anything. She hasn't had an encounter with the Soprano family, nor would she ever be that kind of person from what we know about her. She's not the kind of person that would sabotage him in any way. She likes him very much. She said it numerous times a couple episodes ago. Irina throws the phone in a mission accomplished kind of way, but she really (laughs) is feeling, this is all about her own self-loathing. You know, we get that. We kind of, we kind of get a glimpse back at her. Tony, a few episodes ago, sabotaged her relationship with the congressman um, in a beautiful scene when he belts him for 21 times, I believe it was. <laughs> this is her trying to exact her revenge in a way. But the mixture of Carmela's face, the way the camera shakes, David Chase has mentioned multiple times that he doesn't like close-ups when the camera moves up. He doesn't like any camera movement in general. They abolished there being any movement in Melfi's office. He wanted that to be one frame. Mm. But sometimes, whenever you want to get into Tony's head and you want to get into his menace, a little bit of off-kilter camera shake, it sucks you in. Mm. And they do that here. It's super visceral. Cut to Tony ripping up the driveway, whistling (laughs) Eric Clapton. So, Tony is about to drive, literally drive (laughs) headfirst into something that's the last thing he's ever expected. And he's whistling. Yes. When has he ever whistled, ever, in any Sopranos episode? I couldn't think of one. No, he hasn't. He's sung off-key, but he's never whistled. Very true. Which is ironic, right? This is the... Basically, the unraveling of his marriage. Correct. And he's whistling his way right into right. it. Right, and he has no idea. And I was curious why Layla was chosen as the song playing on the radio. And I heard someone once say that Layla is about a guy trying to have an affair with a woman. So that's pretty cool as a like a subtle thing. If that's true, it's kind of extra awesome if that's true. Uh, another observation is that the piano instrumental of Layla 
is about to begin just when Tony walks through the front door and the music cuts. That piano instrumental is the exact section of the song played in the Goodfellas montage, uh, when all the bodies start turning up and the heist Mm. conspiracy starts to come crashing down. So if you want to strain the connection, (laughs) this is the moment in Sopranos when the facade of Tony and Carmela's marriage comes crashing down. This is probably one of those things where it wasn't given that kind of thought to put in there. But to me, as someone who loves the Goodfellas movie too, it seemed like there was a connection. Mm, I love that. And I love the music reference. And a lot of listeners are going to want there to be specificity here. I said he was whistling Eric Clapton. Of course, it's Derek and the Dominoes. Mm -hmm. The window over the garage is open. Never seen that before. He drives over his golf bag, which you learn from the DVDs that was David Chase's wife's idea. Having the golf bags out there that he can drive over <laughs> and then watching the explosion of balls go everywhere, he credits her for that. That's great. Next, he watches as the dry cleaning gets tossed out the window. He goes inside. You've set us up already a little bit. The camera choice to have it looking up at him as he walks in Any thoughts on the intent there? It's different and it's interesting. Yeah, I read it this way. He walks in seemingly in charge like he always is. So we're looking up at him from a low angle. He's all powerful. But then Carmela, who's really in charge at this point and with the high moral ground, is flinging his clothes down on him from a high angle. So she's in charge now. The power has shifted. That's how I read those two choices. Sold. She slams the door to the bedroom on him. He stands in front of it. Love that moment, downloading what this could be about, framing his rebuttal. Mm. In a flash, he sees everything coming off the rails, but he's also kind of awkwardly relieved. That was my read. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen here? You know, in his mind, she's never going to leave me because of this thing, but like, what could I possibly have done? Maybe he's thinking back about the fingernail at that moment. Tom! What's the matter? Come, what did I do now, huh? He's running through in his head all the possibilities of the lines that he has crossed. To quote Artie Bucco, he's going through all the permutations at, like, internet fucking speed. (laughs) (laughs) When the cat's out of the bag, a huge weight is lifted off of his shoulders for better or worse. We've seen this a couple of times with him. Not as severe, though. Comic relief in this moment. The theme with The Sopranos, the theme with David Chase. In the midst of despair, we're going to get some comic relief. Mm. Tony thinks this whole thing had something to do with what he said about Hughes' psoriasis. (laughs) Now, what did I do? Your mother told you what I said to your father about a psoriasis. I was just trying to be honest with her. It's brilliant. It's genius. I, I'm, I'm a married man, and I, and I immediately think, when I get into an argument with my wife, like, is it something that I said? Like, when, whenever we're at a family, like, this Thanksgiving, for example, there's going to be a lot of awkward moments <laughs> because of the politics, <laughs> and I'm potentially going to say something, and I guarantee you that I will check myself that night and be like, was I okay <laughs> on, on scene three right before the dessert was served? <laughs> so it's very relatable, regularness of life, right? Yeah. That gets her to open the door when he mentions her father. The juxtaposition of that comic statement with the look on her face to instantly reset you is genius. Hmm. Carm says, The Russian called. Your son answered the telephone. Oh, Jesus. 
such choice words. Hemingway-esque. I think Hemingway is on record as owning the shortest book ever written, and I believe it goes something to the effect of for sale, baby shoes, never worn. (laughs) It's just very perfunctory, but powerful. The pearl of sweat dripping down Tony's nose when he thinks he's clear for a second on account that he hasn't seen Irina in years because he's thinking about that Russian is genius. (laughs) Karm flips the script and mentions the one-legged cousin. Karm's gulp as she slogs through her explanation of liking Svetlana at an alopecia and bowel (laughs) movements comfort level, no less is so, again, comedy in the midst of chaos. The violence is palpable, right? Mm. Carm lunges at him. David Chase said they did this take about 22 times, and neither one of them ever lost it. They gave it. Take one was the same as take seven, was the same as take 21. Which take did they use? It doesn't say. Mm. That's a question that we'll save for another day, hopefully. Um, And they did this around 4 o'clock in the morning. Mm. It was early and nobody was there. Good idea. Tony quickly dissipates her energy with one forceful thrust against the wall. Just get out, Tony. Don't even say anything. I'm not going anywhere, and you know it. (sighs) So let's just lie down. We'll calm down. Get your hands off of me! He's very Michael Corleone in this moment. In that scene with Kay, in two, when she says she's keeping the kids and not going back to Nevada. This is, to me, screamed of that. Mm. He tries to calm her down, but she explodes. So they go into the bedroom. They're in the bedroom. So I just want to make one point here. Because Tony is in the background, and she's in the foreground in this scene. And Tony's like a looming shark. So I go back to that word a few times in this episode. Really, it started in reference to uh, Alan Sappinsley being a shark. Like, you referred to asshole lawyers like that. But I think there are several other shark-like moments that are coming up. But this was one that it struck me. He's just in the background, looming, like Trump stalking Hillary in the 2016 debates. Interesting. And there's Tony, this scary, hulking figure in the background... Her in the foreground breaking down, I felt like it's pretty scary to think what he's capable of. What is his next move going to be? We know that he has a weakness for people crying, and he doesn't like that. But we had just come off this physical confrontation between the two of them just outside the bedroom. So now what's going to happen inside the bedroom? I thought it was a, a very heightened... Uh, intensity Mm. in that moment, seeing him loom there. Love that observation. She explodes, but it's different this time. Tony recognizes the difference. He has the presence of mind to say, where's AJ? Distraction. But also he wants to hold his kid's esteem to whatever degree possible. You know, he doesn't want to be that guy in front of his kids, Mm, which I thought was a redeeming quality in him. But he then later in the episode, if I'm correctly recalling it, uh, he kind of chokes her in In the the kitchen kitchen and she says, you want your son to come in and see you do that. He backs off. Yeah. You know, she knows that that's his soft spot. 
she's weaponizing AJ to kind of keep things under. But so's he. But so's is he. my point in this. Yeah. So you've had a one-legged one now, huh? That's nice. You've had quite a time on my watch. The preschool assistant. The weightlifter. At least I never stole from you. Who stole, Tony? Who, me? My own wife, 40 grand, from the bird feeder. The bird feeder, listen to yourself. You sound demented. Not his finest moment. <laughs> it's not proportional, right? Apples and oranges here. Yeah, and it's another effort at distraction is how I read it. Yeah. Like, uh... Yeah, well, at least I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> you committed a crime too. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. trying to justify it and it's, he falls flat on his face there. One of the few times it doesn't work in his favor. Yeah. He denies it. She mentions the fingernail. Again, we've known about this fingernail. It's been looming for the past few episodes. When are they going to have a falling out about this? It's here. He backs off on the fingernail. That fingernail was Valentina's. Again, we know what Carmela doesn't know, but we're kind of rooting for her. Put all the cards on the table, Tony. Just tell her. But he somehow realizes that the optics of this, <laughs> he's kind of in the doghouse, but this, this, is, this will kind of push the whole thing out of whack. Right. So he restrains himself. He shows a little bit of restraint, as bad and as painful as it may be. But he's also, in that moment, doesn't want to admit that there's yet another. Another one. Calm with the line for the ages. Of course, it's a very emotional line. It's a very powerful line. You know what I don't understand, Tony? What does she have that I don't have? <laughs> Where does the oxygen in the room go mm. as a viewer in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. It is a lingering, it is a I see dead people type thing. Like, pause. Mm-hmm. Nothing else needs to be said. There's a finality to that statement that is more powerful. It is a classic, the pen is mightier than the sword moment. Yeah, and also when Tony says, I did not carry on an affair with the cousin and I will take a goddamn polygraph to that effect. Again, I just was connecting back up to the legalese. Like, here's this guy who's committed all these crimes, every imaginable crime and some unimaginable, and he's throwing out some legal argument as to justify what he's done. By using legal ease in this episode to make his case, so yeah. to speak, uh, but without a law degree, these are just empty words. Empty words. Tony can't take the crying. Carmela sits down. She's finally had enough. You know, God bless her. She has to take a seat after all this. But he makes the same face that, that he made when Polly complains. When Polly starts crying about his ma, Tony says famously, we're all going to die. Okay, just shut the fuck up about it already. <laughs> he still hung on the money. I saw this as like, he's kind of, he's still harping on the money that was taken out of the bird feed. He's less concerned about her emotions in this moment, but he got out the fact that he knows it was her about the bird feed. Now that it's been more or less corroborated, his brain is still locked on that because it's all about the quote, motherfucking cocksucking (laughs) money. Okay. (laughs) He walks out, cut to Irina and Svetlana's. Fun fact, just learned this today. I was thinking about this episode with you until the very last minute. Fun fact per David Chase, the actor that played Svetlana, her name is Ala Kloika, hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She played Svetlana. She won the equivalent of the Academy Award in Russia. Mm. 
She's great. So Tony shows up at Svetlana's house. Love the touch of the neighborhood passerby stopping to watch Tony's histrionics for a moment. But then moving along, just another Tuesday. Mm. Right? Regularness of life. Svetlana opens the door, explains that Irina's hiding out. She blames Tony for what happened to Zelman. V for Vendetta. Tony finds out that Bronca, the crooked nurse, told Irina. Comes full circle with that character, right? She was mad at Svetlana for taking money out of her paycheck for FICA and federal withholding. Such a wonderful regularness of life writing detail. This whole thing, this whole episode, the crux of this episode happened because some box had to be checked on a payroll form. And further to that point, it's a nice callback to Carmela from earlier in the season when she steals money from the bird feeder and deposits it in four different under $10,000, therefore not taxable increments to four different financial companies to avoid paying taxes. Svetlana, by comparison, is more honest, more straightforward, less Sneaky, more law-abiding, more virtuous, more hard-working than Carmela. Svetlana's practical. She has no agendas. Tony admires her independence much more than he admires Carmela's. Mm -hmm. And in his mind, one's earned what she has, however little, and one hasn't earned what she has, no matter how much she has. Mm. Wonderfully said. The other thing that's funny, the fact that an American flag is waving in the backdrop is a little too perfect. Well, you know, the American flag is big in the frame when we first meet Alan. Yes. uh, Painting on his porch. Symmetry. Yeah. And I also, um, can we appreciate the little moment of comedy of Tony banging and screaming at Arena's front door and the other one opens with Svetlana emerging. Right. I just... Yeah, it, it's it's perfect. It's so it's, funny. It, it's perfect. It's a mini movie between the two of them here. She comes down with the prophetic wisdom, coolest customer you're ever going to get, cementing her mythology in the show as being continuously above the fray, if you will, right? Divorce is very hard for kids. After this, they don't trust. I'm child of divorce. She's stoic, and it bothers Tony. He's, like, irritated. It's like a gnat on your shoulder. And at the same time, I think it actually impresses him. Yes. It frustrates him. It attracts him him to her. Yeah, she's she's the strong, silent type. Yes. That he's always admiring. Yes. And and she is that. Episode 410, that whole episode is about Svetlana. She's Mm -hmm. the one. That's when Tony and and her consummate their affair, if you will. Nicely uh, nuanced Nicely description. Nuanced. How about a little sympathy here? What do you got, fucking ice in your veins? I had ice in my veins on your uncle couch. Most expensive piece of ass I ever had. Right. <laughs> the way he delivers it, though, like he has, it's like an engine revving, you know? It's perfect. Uh, she takes his hand, again, completely disarming him, yeah. offers empathy, and compliments him. It's something his mother never did. Yeah. In a way, it's all he's ever wanted from people in his life. Svetlana is the only person in the world who can get away with calling Tony on his shit. Yeah, why do you think that is? I don't know. I think he partially feels sorry for her because she only has one leg. And yeah. maybe that's, you know, too too much it's for... It's not threatening to him. For To him, yeah. And he doesn't like it, per se, but he does always respect her and admire her for having the balls to do it. Yes. Well, his 
eruption with Carmelo we're going to get to in a moment is all about what Svelana is that Carmela isn't, right? Yeah. Cut to the Whitecaps nameplate. I love the touch to show the car lights going off on the nameplate, signifying perhaps that the lights are out for the Whitecaps investment, if not more. Tony inhales the ocean air and crashes. Maybe he's out of the woods. Tomorrow's another day type moment. Great Mm. little scene. Contextual question for you. Mm-hmm. When something is greenlit, you kind of mentioned this a moment ago, it can still fall apart and never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. Deals fall through in real estate and in tentpole films <laughs> alike. What are some of the ways in which a greenlit project can fall apart? I will tell you, I always felt like it's a miracle that any movie gets made. I've heard you say that, yeah. Yeah, and, and beyond that, I think it's like an act of God when a movie is really good. <laughs> we could all sit in the same room. Director, star, producers, studio executive, financiers, every decision maker. And we could decide that we love this movie and that we're going to make this movie. And I'd still give it, like, at best, a 10% chance <laughs> of that movie ever getting made. Some reasons include, but are not limited to, schedules, fees, financing, creative differences, timing, change of regime, somebody gets fired, the stock drops, you name it. A million things can go wrong, and events both within your control and outside of your control, they often seem like they're conspiring against that particular movie getting made. It's such a small needle hole that that thread has to go through. And by the way, it's not always something complicated. More often than not, it's scheduling. Oh, well, that star that I will greenlight this movie with is already committed for the next two years. Doesn't matter. We're still going to make this movie in two years from February. We're going to make this movie. And then sometime in the next two years, that star is no longer a star, has had three bad movies in a row, and is forgotten. And so you decide, ah, I'm not, ah. Mm. And then two years from February, there's a new head of the studio. Yeah. Or there's a new head of marketing who's weighed in and said, well, that idea for a movie, I can't market that. I don't know how to do that. Or today there's a merger. Today there's a merger. So... Any reason that you can come up with, that movie will find that reason to not get made. So how do you overcome that? You just focus on what you can control? Well, there's shockingly little that you can control, number one. But if you have, usually a great script will attract the right talent who has enough power and perseverance to get that movie made. But that's not always the case either. So there are a thousand, maybe a million reasons that Project X will never find the light of day. And then just as suddenly, Project X has 12 suitors just from the timing of life and the way the planets line up. And five people want to make that movie. And now you're in a bidding war. So it it could go any way you slice it. To quote, Uh, The Sopranos, which undoubtedly got it from William Goldman, nobody knows anything. Right. And the truth of that truth is stunning 
in its accuracy. Cut to Adriana in a parking lot. Hmm, interesting. Adriana in a parking lot. Flashback to (laughs) Dr. Melfi in a parking lot. And also, here's another shot of a woman's legs, this time someone with two of them. One of those two shapely legs puts out a cigarette in contrast to Svetlana in the prior scene who put out the cigarette with the tip of her crutch. And poor Adriana, just because you've got both of your legs doesn't mean you can run. She goes right into the car with the FBI, poor thing. You are officially inducted into the Potabang Hall of Fame. Oh, that one. well, thank you. That was incredible. <laughs> she meets Agent San Severino, mostly smoke and mirrors, this is the way Adriana is. She actually doesn't really want to be in this situation, which is good, but it's not going to end well, as we can probably predict. It's also revealed that Vito is checking in on Adriana every two <laughs> seconds while Chris was in recovery. Curious red herring because it's later determined or later established that Vito's her cousin. It's also part of Vito's soon-to-be-revealed double life. Yes. Right? He's yes. overcompensating by acting like a ladies' man. And... Those are good early seeds planted by these amazing writers. Uh, Fun fact related to Vito, Joseph Ganascoli, who played Vito, when I was running production at Disney after The Sopranos ended, I wanted to meet Vito and do something nice for him. So I asked the filmmakers to hire him for a small bit part in a little Disney comedy starring Martin Lawrence and Raven Simone called College Road Trip. And... So I went to the set to visit him and therefore got the chance to chat with him about the Sopranos and other stuff. And, of course, he got paid for that small part. So everybody wins. But I, I, it was a very specific desire on my part to have him play this tiny little bit part in mm. the movie. And he was kind enough to say yes. True story. I interviewed him this morning. No, you did for not. For Pot of Bang, yeah. Back on Tony, it's morning. Someone's banging on the window. It's Alan with the what the fuck face for the ages, right? You know what? As much as we say he's a douchebag, he portrayed one brilliantly. It's genius on every level. And I recognize him from other shows yes. or other... When he says kipasa, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's another douchey phrase, especially when this white guy is thrown in some Spanish. <laughs> we uh. learn that he's also, to add to his douchebag credentials, if you will. (laughs) We learned that he's been through three marriages. And he gives this advice, which is twisted but gold, and you alluded to it earlier. Meet with all the top divorce attorneys. Conflict of interest, he says. (laughs) This is great seed planting for a future story point, a future season, right? Yeah. Contextual question for you. With respect to sequels, what kinds of things are you looking for in the incumbent material, if that's the right expression, to coalesce in the sequel? What boxes need to be checked off your checklist, if you will? Well, the reality is all you want to do is make the best movie you can. The chances of a film succeeding are so slim, unless you're Marvel, Pixar, Disney Library film, or some other IP. You may, in your most private moments, fantasize very, very quietly about planting certain seeds in your movie that will somehow pay off in future films when this movie gets made and you become famous and wealthy and successful and 
you knew that that was going to happen and then you put stuff into the sequel that you've laid the pipe for here. Hollywood is a very superstitious place and nobody really wants to tempt the movie gods by assuming there will be a sequel to your movie when it before it comes out so let alone when you're writing or making it you don't you just don't want to put that out there great point once your movie becomes a hit no problem you can plant seeds retroactively you can pretend like you were planning for that but typically uh breadcrumbs easter eggs and all that stuff are not planted with an eye towards in the future someone's gonna go back in time and and know that that's the stuff that was put in Having said all that, I can tell you that in my experience, Rossio and Elliot, who were the brilliant writing team who wrote the first three Pirates of the Caribbean movies, amongst many other hits, actually, and Gore Verbinski, who directed the first three Pirates films, they believed very strongly in the notion of distant mountains, which is an approach where they have a character mentioned, for instance, some location that the film never visits or mention a character that we never meet in that first film. By the second or third film, we do meet them or we do visit those locations. And these writers brilliantly planned for this in the case of the first Pirates film and peppered that original film and their subsequent ones with those distant mountains elements. Examples of others who have done that are obviously the Star Wars movies and the Marvel films, and I I think those are shining examples of the distant mountains philosophy. Mythology-based films tend to have worked out many tributaries that exceed the running time of a film. So you can't really, or sometimes you just can't afford to shoot all those scenes or they don't have any place in the tighter story that you're trying to tell. So those movies that are mythology-based tend to have more of those elements than straightforward stories. Mm. But typically, filmmakers don't plan on any checklists, as you call them, with the first movie. That doesn't typically happen. If you even want to tie it back to The Sopranos, they, they wrote the pilot as if it was done. That's mm-hmm. the movie. Right, self-contained. Self-contained. Yeah, and I get whatever that. whatever happens, happens. Yeah. Tony cleans up and comes to Alan's house to tell him the deal's off. Alan, we have a signed contract. Echoes of the Godfather, right? And also a legal position. Yes. Tony, what's the big deal? Let me out of this thing. Not a legal position. Yes. Alan. I can. I have partners. What the fuck does that have to do with anything? (laughs) What kind of ace in his sleeve is that? It seems Alan is lying to make it seem like his hands are tied, that Tony will have to deal with others besides him if it came to that. And it's just more legal terminology he's using to back off a non-lawyer to bully him into getting what he wants. Yes. Uh, Back to your question earlier about leverage. That's how I read this beat. Alan is using his legal expertise to leverage Tony, but clearly underestimating Tony's extra-legal wiliness. (laughs) (laughs) Tony leaves, not buying the house. Alan to his wife. I dealt with them. He's he's talking about how this is a negotiation and he knows full well. I'm going to play that soundbite. It's brilliant. Yeah. I'll probably let him walk, but that's a negotiation, which he knows full well. Briefly, 
Enya was, I don't know if there was a connection there or if it was scripted, but Enya music was sampled and her copyright was infringed by the Fugees. But they worked out a compromise. Apparently, thanks to good old Alan Sappinsley. <laughs> Wife, you don't have any partners. And of course, the reference to your <laughs> wonderful mention. Thank you, Rabbi. Loaded on so many levels. Again, they're hitting all the ethnicities. Oh, yeah. Beat for beat. Johnny Sack calls Tony to tell him Carmine wants to settle. Call the hit off. They meet at a park bench. How pastoral of them, right? Lots of sweeping landscape changes in this final episode. Expansive, again, we're marinating in escapism over here. Tony gets the 40 down to 15. Don't you love the hypocrisy of Carmine saying that as a matter of principle, I can't relinquish my claim to the HUD profits. We can whack out whoever we want, but I have principles and principles matter to me. I, I love that. And also yet another legal reference being made by a mob boss. I relinquish my claim. Yeah. Like, Hold it, come on. Holding their work at an equivalency. It's you know? so spectacular. Carmine was methodical and adult. He's kind of like demonstrating to the younger generation what a boss should be, right? A Don never wears shorts. <laughs> Johnny Sack, on the other hand, is visibly disgusted and disappointed. And Tony kind of knows it and likes it. Yeah, and Christopher recounts that too when he says to the guys when Tony gave him his final number, <laughs> Carmine's defense flew out. <laughs> great line, great line. Back over to Carm. Meadows home and processing what happened between mom and dad. She brings up Furio. She sensed it all along. Again, one of the things I've been saying since the beginning is that Meadow is all Tony and that Meadow could conceivably lead this family into the 21st century, if you will, to quote the show. Yeah, I think I agree with you completely. I think Meadow... A woman boss. Yeah, she's not just smart like Tony, but instinctive and intuitive like he is, right? She has... Street smarts, she has an innate sense of things and people, just like Tony. They both have just this great antenna. He never underestimates her. Right. Never. Setting that up beautifully, she sensed Furio all along, the exact opposite of Tony, who was completely oblivious about Furio until this episode. I mention it because it reminds me of a scene between him and Meadow in the kitchen, lit by the moon, where he tells her, you're all me. Except in this instance, she's kind of like, kind of indicating to me that she's actually a level, a notch above, which I guess as a parent, you want your kids to transcend you in a way, right? But to Carm's credit, she never did anything wrong. She just window shopped. But she does throw that at Tony, which is the very thing that takes their fight to the next horrifying level. She makes it personal. Yes. She knew... She knew that even a hint of her cheating on him would bring his blood to a boil. Yeah. There was no... There was no denying it. No. In all aspects of the show, she's actually above him, but she got down on his level in that moment. Yeah. And that was what was the undoing. Yeah. Because she and, really and wanted it. We're, we're reflecting forward in the, yeah. in the episode to their big fight. But when that happens, she knows just what she's doing. <laughs> She's really milking that part of the story. 100%. Yeah. At first, Meadow comes off as hostile towards Carm. Note that. But then she becomes protective. 
It's a beautiful turning point in their relationship, coming at the very worst time set of circumstances, albeit. Mm-hmm. They've been on the fritz for years, but this somehow actually brought them closer together. There's an irony there. Cut to Tony eating alone at Artie's. What finale would be complete without getting some Artie into the mix? Mm. He empathizes with Tony. Tony's response, this is not al dente. (laughs) Brick fucking wall. And also another Tony power move, right? Even if it's a super petty one. Yes. Right? He's in charge. He's unbowed. He's doing just fine. I don't need your sympathy, Artie. Go do your job. <laughs> and another additional observation that Chase gives us in this scene is that Tony's unrelenting once he's been crossed. And remember back to when Artie and the whole thing with the Jean-Philippe and the Armagnac business, when he gets the money and he can't recoup the money and Tony sees him in the hospital, the internet lightning speed line, mm-hmm. Tony Soprano is mad at him for recognizing that he gets to eat at Vesuvio's for free for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. You knew what you were doing when you screwed me, Tony. Right. He hasn't forgotten that. Johnny calls. Tony quotes Carm's Confucius line. More is lost by indecision than wrong decision. The hit is still on, at least for now. Cut to Polly complaining about Johnny Sack to Silvio, <laughs> which is really fucking rich, right? Because until now, he's been all about Johnny Sack. He's but just now, covering his tracks. He's covering his tracks. Yeah. Now the tables have turned. Polly tells Tony to throw Carmela out. With all due love and respect to Carmela, I put a shit out on the curb and let it rain on off. No! You can't disrupt the kids. That shit traumatizes them for life. It's his house as much as it is hers. More. I paid for it. That's right, T. I'm on your side on this. Polly, with the A plus level ass kissing. He's got a lot of catching up to do, I guess, but I think it's too little too late. I think Tony's on to him. Yeah, it's also a moment where Tony's suspicions are underscored, right? Polly mm-hmm. says, I'm on your side on this, T. Emphasis on the word this. This. So accidentally, unconsciously revealing there were times when Polly wasn't on Tony's side of things. Both Tony and Silvio pick up on this right away. Absolutely. Polly is just not smart enough to play this high stakes game. Polly's only capable of playing checkers, not chess. Yes. And most of the other characters in the show are usually playing checkers, while Tony is the one playing chess. I also think there's small significance that when Tony meets with Carmine in the park earlier, to finally close their Esplanade split. There's a game of checkers, or is it chess, going on on the table between them. There are actually two of them, uh, but no pieces, just two checkerboards. You don't know if they're playing chess or checkers. You could play both, but my bet is on on chess with these two mob bosses. That's actually a wonderful metaphor. The guys, they're playing chess in the park, like in in Washington Square Park in, in the city. Speed chess. Speed chess. Love that. Good catch. Alan calls, tries to strong-arm Tony and keep the 200K deposit. Sweat on his upper lip is a classic touch. He holds ground and hangs up on Tony Soprano. He hangs up on Tony Soprano. (laughs) Doing justice to the Rocky Marciano picture that he has in his office, Mm -hmm. note that same picture also exists in the back office of the Bing. Yeah, Interesting that they both have that in their respective confines. Champion boxers. 
Cut to Tony sneaking up on Carm in the kitchen at night. Michael Myers over here. Yeah, he's haunting her already. With new fuel (laughs) from Polly's perspective, Tony asserts himself in the house. He comes and goes as he pleases. That's the plan, at least. He grabs her and shoves her against the counter that we mentioned a moment ago. Their faces are separated by a bowl of oranges. Godfather reference. I don't love you anymore. I don't want you. What does she have to do to convince him, to convince us that it's over? Precisely that. Mm-hmm. Powerful piece of writing. Mm-hmm. His eyes convey his acknowledgement, as well as the acknowledgement of 50 million people or however many people watched that night in December. Alas, he wins. He always does. He opens the fridge and grabs the cold cuts. You know, I've always loved Edie Falco's line reading of I'm going crazy as she retreats up the stairs. Yes. Along with minimal makeup the last couple of episodes and really not looking her best in this episode, adding to the realism, of course, and that line reading especially reinforces how real these moments are for this character. Completely egoless acting from Edie Falco. The crescendo in her voice when she says... I'm going crazy. Going crazy. Incredible. Next, we see AJ helping Tony get settled in the theater room. Hmm. Finally, this new venue that we were introduced to episodes ago, you called this just a minute ago, uh, Mountain, what did you call it? Uh, Distant Mountain. Distant Mountains. This was a distant mountain for the Sopranos, if there ever was one. The venue that we were introduced to episodes ago, the purpose of it becomes clear. Regularness of life again on full display. Tony sits down and watches an inflatable bed inflate. (laughs) I've been there. (laughs) He can't sleep, so he calls Christopher, who is doing sit-ups instead of hitting up. Mm. See what I did there? (laughs) Tony tells him to call off the hit on Carmine and reminds him to make sure. Johnny Sack's anxiousness threw this deal out of whack, right? That's what this is all about. Johnny Sack wants this a little too much. I'm going to dial back the levers a little bit. And, I'm and he at- sees an opportunity. You know, if they're nothing if not opportunists, of these guys. <laughs> we get a wonderful cut to Christopher's head being framed by a bridge. David Chase was particularly fond of this scene. Mm. Death is imminent. That's what the bridge signifies. It's a look back at Vin McKazian in season one. The two black hitmen pull up in front of graffiti that reads White Power. (laughs) Don't say jack shit to Kaisha about this. Remember that name in a future episode. I didn't see this kill coming uh, the first time I watched it. Somehow it still surprises me every time. They were sacrificial pawns, to take this chess analogy, in Tony's grand master level conflict with New York. Mm -hmm. These are the two guys... You're never going to see either the pawns that you give up to get access to the queen or to advance your knights or whatever the case may be. Mm. David Chase made a point to tell you how many cuts in an action scene they had to do to make this. He was kind of lamenting the notion that in television, you don't have a lot of time to develop action. And this one in particular was 11 scenes. And he counts them. One cut two, cut three, cut four. And it made me kind of think about sort of after the fact, there's not really a question here about it for you, but like the contrast between action and film versus the contrast Mm. in TV with respect to time constraints. And Oh, uh, absolutely. And time is money. Yes. So when you're making a TV show or making a movie, these deadlines are always on you. You always have to make your days. 
if you don't make your days, you go over budget. And so that's, that's part of it. I will also tell you that action scenes with movies are not always shot by the director of the movie. You can get a second unit director to go out and shoot extraordinary action scenes mm. that get cut into that part of the movie. They're specialists, if you will, yes. in action. Yeah. Nice final touch on this scene, another opportunity for a Godfather reference, of course. One of the hitmen manages to get out of the car <laughs> like Sonny Corleone at the toll booth in one. Mm. Next, the camera is trained on the sky. This just after death. Another nice flashback to season one, the college episode. Tony's floating in the pool. This, we learned from David Chase on the DVD, was a very expensive and non-television shot. They had to get cranes to get that overhead shot of Tony mm-hmm. floating in the pool. Again, kind of echoing what you said, time is money, and, and uh, you don't have a lot of time to get shots like that. But he wanted that shot, and so he had enough muscle, if you will, to get it. Mm. More calm before the storm. Yes, another one. The one. Mm. At this point, we've still got 24 minutes to go in the episode. What could possibly happen next? (laughs) Tactical, brilliant pacing and cadence in this episode. We're bouncing like Tony in that pool, chomping at the bit for what's about to come next. And the shot of him in the pool recalls the Whitecaps title. You know, there he is, peaceful on the water, seemingly... (laughs) And as you said, the calm before this storm. And she's looking out the window at him. And uh, again, I may be stretching this too much, but... you can It's impossible to do that. <laughs> but I saw him as the shark. There he is. He's in the water. He's just biding his time. Something's going to happen. Someone's going to get victimized here. Someone's going to get eaten somehow. And we're about to find out. Tony tries to throw whitecaps at her as a, look, wasn't that a peace offering, if you will? She says it was just a bigger version of an emerald ring. So you could keep on with your other life. Powerful line. Like you said, she went out there to start some shit, and she does. Every line Tony proffers, though, Carmela has a counter for. Except for physicality, she has him beat in every way. And all Tony can do is wave a cigar, which is a, which I, which to me, when I see that now and I look at it through Pata Bing lenses is is sort of like a a protective, like it's an in-between me and you. I'm going to wave this cigar to, you got me, but my cigar is going to protect me. I think that's part of it. And I also think it's a sign of masculinity. Yeah. So there he is, you know, he's, he's in his shorts. He's kind of vulnerable physically. He covers himself up in that moment, I think, with a towel. Yes. So where's the masculinity in any of that? Nowhere to be found except in this We established with the cigar. We get another needle thread back to the pilot. He brings up something that he's been holding onto for four seasons. Mm -hmm. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to hell when I die. Carmela actually is diffused by this, right? She comes in apologetic. Maybe there's a chance here. I'm watching this thinking, okay, maybe this thing is going to blow over. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to get back to Sopranos as it were. Maybe they can make up here. You were my guy. You could be so sweet. Nobody can make me laugh like you. This is the part of the episode that David Chase has a problem with. And he says, even though I wrote it, I'm not particularly thrilled with how this went down. Hmm. I have a great poignant thing for you that I'll give you at the end that he said himself. Tony says, you knew the deal. Hmm. 
Something about the word deal, transactional, impersonal, commoditizing, you feel that? Legal. Legal, thank you. We learn about Jerry Tufi, Carmela's (laughs) other suitor. (laughs) Somehow the Tufis just doesn't have the same resonance as the Sopranos, but uh, him and his snowplow business is an interesting universe spinoff. Um, at least I would have asterisked that if I, were, if I were thinking about ways we could extend the IP of this universe. Tony pivots to materiality. He's going below the belt. He starts the below the belt process that I think enables Carmela to go there, right? Clawing back at Carmela, being hateful. Then she does something very interesting. She walks away from him like a pitcher walking back to the mound to throw a fastball. And it's coming. Are you ready? She tells him about Furio. Again, a part that David Chase does not like the way it was presented. He turns around. The way the camera slow zooms in on him is pure menace. He puts a hole in the wall and then some. They don't build homes like they used to is what I thought. When she realizes he won't lay a hand on her, she comes back with vigor. Come what may. Right? Communication is a word that she exchanged with Furio. And they both locked eyes on each other over that word. Tony's moment is explaining what Svetlana had that Carmela didn't. She's a grown fucking woman who's been kicked around. And she's been on her own. And she's had to fight and struggle. Unlike me, is that it? Who the fuck wanted it like this? Who the fuck pissed and moaned at just the idea of me with the fucking real estate license? Free to sit back for 20 fucking years and fiddle with the air conditioning and fucking bitch and complain and fucking bitch, bitch, bitch to me, to your priest. Fuck it. Brilliant piece of writing in that it effectively transfers his rage and hurt for what happened or didn't happen with Furio to land an effective combo on Carmela. But at the same time, it's one of the most hurtful things that's ever been said to her. Like he was saving it again. Tracy and Hepburn reference. That was a 26-year relationship that spanned nine movies. Catherine Hepburn, and sadly, I don't know Tracy's first name. Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy. Thank you. Carmela lands the final blow. Well, Tony, what about the thousand other fucking pigs you had your dick in over the years? The strippers, the cocktail waitresses. Were you best friends with all of them, too? You fucking hypocrite. She inserted piece of shit in there. It was off script. They cut it out. One of the things that has been established about this show is that you don't go off script. It was powerful and poignant. He acquiesced, but it wasn't in script, so they cut it. So it's not in the It's not in what we dialogue. see. Okay. She walks out of the ring. She absorbed his best and left the room emboldened, powerful. This interaction has always resonated with me and haunted me over the years because it was relatable on a deep level. House where parents fought frequently. David Chase himself said he wanted to convey some of the sentiment that kids blame themselves when parents divorce. And this encapsulation of that is one of the best dialogued and choreographed moments between two people lost somewhere in their marriage. I completely agree. So much of the power of this sequence is in its realistic depiction of a knockdown, drag-out fight between two parents. It's rare you ever see this kind of horrifying portrait of marriage on TV 
or even in the movies, really. And accurate. Yes, accurate. So you, you, it's particularly intense because who knows what Tony is capable of doing physically when poked so skillfully by the person who knows him best. But on an emotional level, its intensity is experienced tenfold because every syllable coming out of their mouths is 100% accurate. There's more truth being hurled at one another in this short scene than in all four previous seasons put together between these, this married couple. They've let go completely of their normal filtering system, a system that's allowed them to come near the third rail of their marriage without ever touching it before. But in this scene, they've had just about enough of that pretense that's held up this marriage forever, and they just grab that third rail with both arms. It's quite a thing to witness after 52 episodes of both of them stopping short of speaking the real truth out loud. Perpetual kudos to the writers, director, and actors. This is just amazing, amazing work. It's safe to say that you and me feel one way about this scene. And I think I can confidently say that he was just being modest. His response to this scene is that Arthur Miller would have done a better job. Mm. Well, To which I would say it is Arthur Miller-esque at a minimum. I, I get that self-criticism, but uh, it, does, uh, it does the job quite effectively. <laughs> and you probably rewatched this episode before sitting down yes. here with me today, and I've rewatched it several times. It's timeless. Yeah. You can't say that about everything that's on screen. No, but I would also argue that the show itself, even with social references, cultural references that are put into every episode, if you're maybe of a certain age like I am, or you are, or our listeners are, it has more resonance and a timeless version of that resonance. Thousand percent. But I, I don't feel like any of it's dated. No. I actually feel like these these relics of the past, these technological relics, the pay phones and the cordless phones, it's beautiful. It's yeah. a it's an anthropological exercise to watch the show now, you know, it's if nothing true. else. Okay. Palette cleanse time. Deep breath moment, if you will. The camera's trained on Junior, who's waiting outside of the courtroom. Note how Junior is actually taking a very deep breath in this scene. Very fitting. He's kind of doing what we're all doing in that (laughs) moment. These cold hallways outside the courtroom are a perfect place to drop us off after what we just saw. Mm. Now, over to Melfi. Carousel of characters over here. It's the finale after all. It's Tony who calls her. Her phone rings, but he doesn't say anything. Recall from a few episodes back that he's been on break. He kind of wanted to give therapy a timeout. What better time to begin again after having problems with your wife, right? On the one hand, Tony realizes he desperately needs Dr. Melfi's help, which is why he makes the call in the first place. On the other hand, when he hears her voice, he's too proud to let her know that he needs her. So no dialogue here and a very quick scene, just great visual storytelling through writing and directing. It also looks to me like Tony could break down in tears any second. Mm. And he's comfortable and vulnerable with her enough to do that. We've seen him do it on multiple right, occasions. Right, but there's a lot of pride involved. Like him coming back to her is a, you know, an effort. Another season one reference, 
in the moment right before Tony hangs up, the camera orbits his head, like college. And I interviewed Alan Coulter, who directed that episode, and this camera orbit thing was a thing to show the two sides of Tony Soprano. But if I recall correctly, we should look at that scene. In college, it goes from one side of his head to the other. Here, it stays on one plane. We get one side of it. We get one plane of it. But the camera movement was reminiscent of that. Yes. Back in court, it's verdict time. They're still hopelessly deadlocked. There's one lone juror. The result is a mistrial. Brass tacks, the implications of a mistrial, three things can happen. The prosecutor can dismiss the charges, a plea deal can be made, or another trial can be scheduled on the same charges. We don't know what's going to happen. I bring it up because it sets up a breadcrumb for a future season, if nothing else. Back at the Soprano home, Tony's watching a doc on the Battle of Tarawa, which is a battle in the Pacific theater of World War II. AJ, we learn, wants to move in with Tony. Little Polly and company, meanwhile, are taking out all that fancy audio equipment. What gives? A nice, wait-for-it moment piece of writing. (laughs) Pay attention, viewer. Tony tells AJ to do one thing Carmella wanted him to do. Be more considerate. Ironic that it's coming from Tony. Leopards can't change their spots, is what I thought. But maybe AJ can. Maybe it's not too late for AJ. Trying to find moments in the course of doing this podcast and watching this episode where we can have opportunities to root for AJ. And we know that Tony wants AJ to be a better version of himself. At least a quarter of the time he's in therapy, he's complaining about his concerns about his son. This is a nice moment. I think there's more to this dialogue. It seems to me that Tony is telling AJ everything that Carmela would rather hear from Tony himself directly mm. and what Tony ought to be saying to Carmela himself but can't or won't. Be more considerate, which Tony actually tells AJ twice. It would hurt her feelings that you don't want to be in that house. Tell her you're sorry. Go buy her those CDs she likes and some flowers. Try to be more considerate. Those are all things he tells AJ about her. And here's the thing. I don't believe Tony will ever say he's sorry and truly mean it. He'll never be considerate to his wife. He doesn't care about hurting her feelings. And buying stuff for AJ's mom, Tony, of course, knows will always solve everything. And Tony's ultimate sad legacy is he's teaching AJ all those same moves. And one last observation of this scene. AJ says the word fuck in response to Tony saying, you can't stay here with me. And then Tony, after AJ says fuck, Tony immediately reaches into his pocket to give AJ a wad of bills to buy Carmela the flowers and the CDs. So the earlier mixed message of Carmela's policy of paying $3 into a swear jar is instantly undermined by Tony paying AJ after he swears. Classic. <laughs> Love that. Love it. Sidebar on this scene, Tony's eating guiltless gourmet. <laughs> Something or other. Gillis Gourmet has actually been going strong since 1989. Oh, yeah, they're still around. It's currently under the umbrella of Menashevitz, a New Jersey-based food company. Okay, so the best part, their marketing slogan, Gourmet Without Guilt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Genius. Junior's back home, out of the woods. 
wants to have a little get-together to celebrate, we learn. He says he doesn't think Tony would come on account of what's happening at that abattoir. (laughs) French for slaughterhouse. Okay. The hilarious part to me is when Junior references the abattoir slaughterhouse, He's not referring to Satriali's pork store. He's referring to Tony's house, which makes me crack up. Yes. It's just that it's, yeah. So, yeah. it's so subtle. Super subtle. And it's a word that only Junior can say because he's old school. <laughs> and it's so loaded, right? Yeah. I say this over and over again. The writing is super efficient. Mm. You know, it's like you're cutting all the different vegetables for a salad. Somehow they managed to cut all of the vegetables at the same time. That's the only thing, way that I can describe That's it. That's great. We see on camera that Bobby and Janice are officially an item. <laughs> Took the whole season, but here we are. Okay. Sonny and Cher over here. <laughs> By the way, I myself can't ever watch them together as a couple without thinking about Janice's duplicitousness. But also, without reminding myself how much I like Bobby, even feel sorry for him. Maybe both. Such a sad sack, but I do like him. Maybe because he's never had a Gumar. Maybe because he's perpetually paying his dues, yet never advancing in the corporation. Janice doesn't deserve him. Plus, I think Junior is just annoyed and maybe a little uncomfortable with the public display of affection when he's singing I Got You, Babe, to yeah. Janice and dancing with her in Junior's kitchen. Frankly, so am I. I, I. I'm very uncomfortable with that. Junior can't take this one-sided relationship, so he interrupts their romantic revelry and tells Bobby to go down to the cellar and... That's what I was wondering. You know... He can't stand it. Collect the envelope that Murph left under the flagstone or whatever. He knows he can't break this couple up, but he can sure find a way to have the marriage stop playing out in front of him and in his own goddamn kitchen, no less. I think it's just too much for him to have to look at this vision of, you know, love, which he knows is bullshit. Because he knows her. Because he knows her. Yeah. He's had a bad taste in his mouth for her since back to the days of Johnny Boy. Because he doesn't trust her, and he never did. Yeah. We've seen subtle and not-so-subtle evidence of this over the years. And as you said, he even tried to warn Bobby away from her when she first started homing in on him after Mm -hmm. Bobby's wife died. He knows she's rotten to the core. Junior knows this. And it started back when she was 10 years old and stole money from his wallet. Yep. He's definitely getting older and his faculties are beginning to wane. But Junior's deep-rooted dislike and distrust for her, he'll never forget as long as he's alive. And it's so understated in this scene. Yeah. But all these things that we're describing have been decades in the making. Yeah. And it's elegantly just dispensed to us with a look. Yes. And I think it's also for him to look at Bobby and know that Bobby can't see her for who she really is, it bothers him too. Great point. Next up, a boat. The Stugats just got refinished. It pulls out outside Alan's house. Alan and his friends, I hope you love this one, are about to enjoy his legendary (laughs) shark fin soup. Nice touch, writers. But are disturbed by the sounds of Dean Martin. And that sound is in the form of a drum roll. Yes. So... It's also brazen, too, and funny, the choice of a Vegas recording from the Rat Pack being the recording that he's chosen to harass Alan with. 
we're the mob and you can't escape us. I love that messaging on your shark fin soup note. Um, his wife specifies that it's Alan's shark fin soup. Yes. He's the shark, not her. And so's Tony, whose presence, like a shark, is literally now in the water right outside their home. Beautiful. And the beginning of that shot is the boat coming into the water like, like a, fin. a fin of this shark. So I, I wanted to make that point uh, because it does. The Stugats looks like a shark fin if you think of it in those terms. Love and it. on a related but totally unnecessary note, there's a detail in the end credits that Alan's wife is listed with her character's full married and maiden name. Trish Rheingold Sappensley. Now, I don't remember him ever <laughs> calling her Trish, but the fact that she's even trying to distance herself from this <laughs> douchebag, <laughs> even in the end credits, I'm pretty sure her name was not mentioned in this episode. So a full hyphenated <laughs> name is pretty cheeky. That is awesome. That is so <laughs> that is so great that you caught that. And I'm also thinking now that's some good agenting on her part, on her mm. agent's part, saying, look, this this guy she's married to, total fucking douchebag. We don't want to typecast this woman. We need her to work again. Oh my god. Oh, that's incredible. I love it. And the sh- I didn't even see it. The boat pulling in like a shark. That is a trifecta of symmetry. Tony, Alan, and the ship. Mm-hmm. Oh, love it. The number three keeps resurfacing in the show, so there's this allegory there. Next, Alan, we learn, has a problem with the Gulf of Sorrento. And I want to bring that up only because I have a close friend of mine that runs a boutique (laughs) hotel there, and it's a wonderful place. By the way, Alan Sappensley can't seem to ever help from revealing himself as this pretentious fucktard. Referencing the Gulf of Sorrento as having too much Italian goomba trash, as he calls them, filling up their waterways. What a dick. Yeah. <laughs> it's so perfect. It's genius. perfect. It is perfect. And, and, and again, going back to the acting, the way he delivers it yeah. is a convincing dick. He's probably spent a lot of time with Hollywood agents and lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to Tony visiting Johnny Sack at night at one of their undisclosed locations. Marriage can be very hard work if both aren't pulling that load. <laughs> if you study Tony's expression when we cut to him after that pulling that load <laughs> comment from Johnny Sack, he's struggling not to laugh. Multiple takes. Had to be. Had to be. But it's also an another you know, subtle, brilliant piece of acting on James Gandolfini's part. He's giving us, the viewer, a little something because we're thinking the same thing. without giving away anything to Johnny. And without showing too much to Johnny because you know how Johnny is, how hypersensitive he he is about it. Yeah, he'll pick up on it. Tony tells him the Carmine hit is off, at least on his end of things. You'll get your chance, he tries to reassure. Don't go into coaching, Tony. It's not your long suit. What I was going to say. Then Johnny gets Nietzsche on him. In a Johnny Sack way, of course. Why the fuck would I ever trust somebody who would leave me all of my cock like this? Nietzsche quote paraphrase that kind of like screamed in my brain was, I'm not mad that you lied. I'm mad that I can't trust you anymore. That's sort of what he's trying to establish here. But also 
that's a Godfather reference, right? When Sonny says to Clemenza, I don't want my brother coming out of that toilet with just his dick in his hands. Yes. So almost like Johnny Sack is aware of that famous line and is saying his version of it like he made it up. (laughs) (laughs) Alas, they hug it out. But something is forever changed at that moment. That stare passing by on the way out, it is a distant mountain for future seasons. Mm. Yes. Con- contextual question for you. Yeah. Delivering bad news on a project to a creative or executive, what's your approach? Well, uh, giving bad news to anyone always sucks. There's no escaping the fact that it's going to be bad news. So I always just try to be honest and straightforward while also trying to be gentle about it. It's it's not unlike ripping off a Band-Aid quickly instead of slowly. People actually tend to appreciate honesty, in my experience. Um, in the film business, everyone is used to hearing bullshit all day long. So I prefer to tell it like it is. Of course, not everyone prefers it that way. But for me, I'd prefer a fast no over a slow maybe. Um, I like that. And often their reaction isn't nearly as bad as you might think. So honesty is the best policy. People know it's coming. I think so. Cut to cheese grater. (laughs) Hello, Ralph (laughs) reference. Again, we had him for the bulk of this season. It's a nice little writing tie-in, visual tie-in, visual cue. Tony tells Carmela and Anthony that he's leaving. AJ thinks it's his fault. Very relatable. Meadow offers wisdom go back to counseling. This is the one-upsmanship between her and AJ that she's kind of above the fray and she can kind of see the forest through the trees here a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm. Love that about Meadow. I always have. Mm. Meadow goes upstairs and does a bit of reminiscing. Uh, David Chase makes a point to comment. He doesn't like the cut from Carmela to Meadow here. He says it was a little, he wanted to linger on Edie's face a little bit more, but they went over to Meadow. Just mm. an odd little thing. Actually, it's not odd. It's the fact that his attention to detail justifies exactly what we're doing right now. Mm. Yeah. Note the light in her room brightens, Meadow's light that is, a revelation of some kind perhaps. I didn't, I never noticed that. There's a little like a lava light thing behind her and she's thinking and the camera's on her and then it illuminates a little bit brighter. Huh. It is something that you catch when you sit there hitting space bar like I do, (laughs) freeze framing (laughs) it every which way. Also telling is that her flashback shows her as selfish. When she says, Well, she's blaming new? herself, right? That's correct. That's the that's relatable. Her, yes. yes, that's her doing it. And I also, is there nothing to eat in this house? Of course, is a great recollection from her simply because there's always something to eat in this house. And she was complaining and she blames herself for complaining about something that isn't even the case. Right. Tony says he'll be at the Landmark Plaza Hotel. Mm. Quick update on the plaza current state of affairs as compared to 2002. It has bounced through owners like the Brooklyn Nets, but it is now owned by a Qatari company. Cut to Alan and the missus heading out to enjoy an idyllic evening on the waterfront. Yep, but <laughs> the Stugats with Tony this time as the shark and Alan as the victim, still in the water, waiting silently for Alan and the missus to come outside to enjoy the night air. That, again, it's just our favorite 
shark Tony gets to defeat the legal shark Alan yes. by episode's end. So Tony gets a small win as head of his familia to end season four, even as he loses big with his actual family. Wonderfully said. This episode was so good, it ends <laughs> to a round of applause for itself. The ultimate apex capstone to one of the most perfect seasons of television ever created. Also, previous finales have focused on family and togetherness at the very end. In this one, however, something's broken, which is an interesting contrast, if you will. Love the confidence to present what nobody expected and pull it off impeccably. Hmm. Any final thoughts you had mentioned to me about a line that you had? Still one of my favorite ever. Yes, please. Which is Tony saying, and you were mentioning earlier about how David Chase liked to throw in a little comedy even in these intense moments. When Tony says, You asked me the other day what I read his cousin has that you don't have. And I thought about it because it's a pretty good fucking question. And yeah, she's sexy enough, even with the one pin gone, but that's not it. I could converse with her because she had something to say. I think it's so genius. First of all, it's just a geniusly written line of dialogue. I think it's hysterical, even when buried inside this intense screaming match that's been building between Tony and Carmela for four seasons. Second, it's really mean. He's telling his wife that a woman with one leg is someone he considers sexy, meaning sexier than her. How fucked up is that? Think about it. A husband is telling his wife... Mother of his children. Mother of his children that he considers another woman sexy, first of all. And in doing so, he's telling her that she's sexier without one leg there. That is, that's kind of horrible. So does that punch his wife in the gut? Yes, it does. But compared to his own wife, not only does he consider her sexier than Carmela, but he admires Svetlana more than he admires his own wife. There's so much loaded in this line. And it's just, it's not like it's a surprise reveal that she's got one leg missing. But the fact that he dismisses it as, yeah, with the one pin gone, <laughs> she's sexy enough. I, I'm sorry. I, I wish that there was a way to use that outside of this conversation because... What do you mean? What I mean is there's literally no chance that that line has ever been written or uttered anywhere else <laughs> in the history of everything else <laughs> One pin gone is so specific to this show and to Tony saying that, I think is just genius. I'm going to make that line my cold open for this episode. Okay. What do you think it is about her that he's attracted to? To me, it's just the confidence. A confidence is a more attractive yeah. trait than physical, objective looks. It's kind of the signal that he's getting. I'm not justifying it in any way, but no, no, no. that's what it is, right? It's confidence. I think so, because she's more accomplished in his mind, yeah. than Carmela is. She's less whiny to him. She's more impressive all around. He's using that as an excuse to have sex with yet another person who's not his wife. It's justification for choosing to have sex with another woman in his mind, I think. But 
that whole thing about he can talk to her, she has something to say. It's such a it's such a horrible thing to say to anyone, but especially to the woman he's married to. I think there are it's just too much, but it's pretty dark, and that's as dark as this stuff can get, really. Oren, this was a unique and distinct delight. <laughs> Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. <laughs>